Hey, welcome to Socialism for All. This is S4A live stream number 108 being recorded on September 21st, 2023. With me in the chat at twitch.tv slash socialism S4A are 42 viewers. And we're getting things rolling. We've been chatting for a while, gave out some blue sky invite codes, and now we're actually getting started. So in the stream today, we're going to be continuing some of the discussions that we have been having, which I think are important for people trying to understand, um, you know, capitalism, imperialism, the role of a potentially emerging socialist movement, and so on. So the last stream that we posted as of the time of this recording is number 106. We recorded a stream last week, number 107, and I've just had a very busy week and I haven't been able to edit and post it yet, but I think I'm going to be able to do that tomorrow, Friday. So we're going to edit up 107 and this stream, 108, have those posted for the weekend. I also plan to do uh, an offline supplement about critical thinking and evaluating evidence, much in the same style as um, the 2008 crash video that I posted uh, not that long ago. So what we're going to talk about in this stream is the ongoing discussion of multipolarity, pseudo-anti-imperialism, social revolution versus tailing the bourgeoisie. So the most recently posted video at the time of this recording is 106, and in that we talked about the Russian bourgeoisie's pseudo-anti-imperialism. They are pretending to be anti-imperialist to rally support online, I think somewhat in vain, but you do get a lot of uh, people who exhibit really poor critical thinking uh, buying into this notion that Russia is anti-fascist and anti-imperialist. That is not true. And uh, so anyway, I think I've been talking about doing an offline supplement about um, critical thinking and how to evaluate evidence for a while now. And I think, um, you know, I was really happy with how the 2008 crash video came out. So I think that that offline supplement is a good format for me to delve into topics that maybe come up in the stream, but which in the sort of fast and loose environment of a live stream you know, maybe it's not the optimal space to get into something that, you know, nuanced where I really want to hit every point, you know, exactly uh, in the right way and so on. But I do want to say if you haven't looked at that 2008 video uh, that I basically think that there's going to be another uh, reemergence of basically the same dynamics that caused the 2008 crash. I think that the system bought themselves about 15 years through quantitative easing, basically just nationalizing corporate losses <laughs> while, um, you know, keeping the profits uh, privatized. And what that has done is created record inflation to the point where it's basically at a breaking point now and they can't seem to get out of it. The reverse of quantitative easing is quantitative tightening, trying to get that money back out of the system, get assets off of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, they can't do it. Every time that they do it, it causes some kind of crash. Um, I was going to do this actually a little bit later, but while we're on that topic, and just as a teaser for that thing, if you haven't watched it, again, I stand behind that video. I think it was pretty good. Um, so basically, the premise here, we're looking here at a chart of Federal Reserve assets. Federal Reserve is um, the National Bank of the U.S., it's also commonly just referred to as the Fed. You can see there after the 2008 uh, credit crunch crisis when uh, banks basically stopped lending, 
which is how money gets into the system. If they stop lending, the entire system just dries up. And so the Fed had to step in, dump money in to keep everything flowing. And they said to the banks, here, we'll take this shit that you don't want off of your balance sheets. We'll buy it. And here's cash. And here you have to go lend this money into the economy. Otherwise, everything's going to seize up. And, you know, if you've ever had an engine that like ran out of oil, for example, uh, it's not a pretty scene. And that was threatening to happen. Uh, and so they call that event today the uh, the GFC, Great Financial Crisis, Global Financial Crisis, you know, Global Economic Meltdown. Uh, but you can see that they started doing some fairly unprecedented maneuvers there. Going back to 1914, the Federal Reserve assets as percent of GDP was always, you know, well under 10 percent, mostly under 5 percent. And then suddenly you're over 25 percent. What? So I think that the system as it is now, capitalism is basically on life support. Um, if they get this money back out of the economy, there's going to be a gigantic crisis, which is what was theorized by Marx. Eventually, capitalism would reach a point of low profitability and a final crisis from which it could not recover. I think we may actually be nearing that point, which is not going to be pretty. I mean, at that point, capitalism breaks down, doesn't work anymore. If you haven't replaced it with socialism, then you get like Mad Max. It's not a good thing, uh, which, of course, is what libertarians want. So here's another chart. And this is really what I wanted to highlight. So that last chart just went up to 2014. And that was as percentage of GDP. This is total assets, um, the actual number. So the number along the side is millions of U.S. dollars. So basically a million millions, uh, you got a trillion. So nine million millions. That's where it peaked uh, in 2022 after quantitative easing round four or QE4 was um, nine trillion dollars. But I want to point something out. So after 2008 and then going up through the teens, they did three rounds of quantitative easing. And then you see it levels out in like 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18, and it holds pretty much steady there. So that was QE1, QE2, QE3, got us up to that point. So then in uh, 17 and then 18, particularly 18, they uh, were announcing, hey, we're gonna start doing some quantitative tightening. All this cheap money that we dumped into the economy, we're gonna start pulling it out slowly. So look at what happened. They were at four and a half trillion and they took out half a trillion. Then it starts going back up. Why? Well, the point where it hits a low point is about September of 2019, specifically September 17, 2019, an event called Repo Madness, when the repurchases market basically went haywire. Um, the rates went up from like 1% to 10% overnight. There was the beginnings possibly possibly of a major, again, like seizure of, um, of lending. And that was really bad. So they were like, okay, we'll stop the tightening. And they put more money back in, as you can see. Okay, then what happens? Well, the pandemic hit like four months later. And uh, so then what happens? Well, they did QE4. And so we went from the four and a half trillion that they couldn't even get rid of half a trillion without causing a potential massive, you know, stock market crash. They went up to nine trillion. So, you know, if we can't get out of four and a half trillion, why not double it? 
Well, something that I wanted to point out here that I didn't mention in that video is you can see that that amount on the Fed's balance sheet peaks in 2022, and then they start doing tightening, going like, okay, well, the pandemic uh, emergency response is over. Now, the pandemic is not over. The virus is still circulating. We'll cover that in a minute. But, um, you know, the government interventions, the emergency measures are over. People are going back to work. Let's start tightening because we got to get some of this money out of the economy because inflation is like going through the roof. We got to raise rates, make uh, the price of money higher, basically. Well, what happens is you get a little sawtooth spike right there. And so that is March of 2023. Anyone? Do you remember what happened in March 2023? Oh, and like why there would be a sudden spike in Fed assets back in the easing direction? That's right. SVB, Signature Bank. We started having mid-sized bank failures. So this is what happens as soon as they start trying to pull the money out and those prices come down, especially if real estate is affected, you get a crash and you get bank failures. Now, that was earlier this year, like six months ago. And now, as you can see, they've continued the tightening and they've continued the rate hikes and they're holding steady with that. What's around the corner? Well, as we did cover in the video, uh, the number of job openings is going down. Unemployment is going up. That just started happening, but it can go up quickly once it does start. Now, what's tightly correlated with, um, with uh, unemployment is mortgage defaults. It's, if you overlay the two charts, it's almost the same chart. So as unemployment goes up, people can't afford their mortgage payments and they default and they have to give up their house. So then suddenly you have panic selling, forced selling, basically pushing inventory onto the market, inventory meaning houses for sale. So what's happened in this recent era, the, la the pandemic era where prices totally spiked, Case-Shiller housing index basically is following this curve. You know, as the Fed dumps money in, the housing inflation has gone up dramatically. And it's not because of wages, it's because mostly investors are getting these loans for cheap. They get very low interest rate loans and then they buy up properties and they've been sitting on them. What this has caused is a paralysis of the housing market. Very few houses up for sale, prices very high. As soon as there is a house for sale, there's you know suddenly like one house and 25 people trying to buy it with cash, sight unseen from out of state the same day. You know, that's the situation. But and and that's one of the things supporting uh, prices staying high for so long. But if you suddenly get, let's say that there's a zip code with only five houses for sale, but then 20 homeowners in that zip code um, are suddenly forced to sell because of you know layoffs in the coming recession. Well, then you get a huge flood of inventory, which is going to drive down prices, which is going to fuck everything up and cause a cascade throughout the banking system, especially for the small and medium sized banks. Real estate is a big part of what they do. And suddenly they're not going to be able to be as profitable as they were a few years ago. That can cause the sort of SBB and signature type of thing. And you know, and away we go basically with another uh, beginning of a 2008 type scenario with, again, 
pretty much the exact same same dynamics that existed before. But I wanted to point out, as they were doing this tightening, that little peak is SVB and Signature. It, I forget what Biden was exactly saying. that Oh, it's not a bailout. It's a something or other. He came up with some other euphemism for it. But that's what it was. And they can't seem to get out of the situation. They've, um, you know, for, forestalled a massive crash by, uh, you know, injecting huge amounts of money into the economy. And they can't seem to get back out of it. But they're going to when prices come down. Uh, and probably it's going to be just a runaway effect. Again, unless the Federal Reserve comes up with some new technique that nobody's thought of yet. Um, then there will probably be a, a huge crash. How do you get out of this? I mean, world war is probably not off the table, and there's already pieces lining up for that. I mean, um, you know, we take the pandemic very seriously here, and SARS-2 is a very real virus. Um, we're actually, it's a good segue into BioBot right now. As you can see, the pandemic is not over. We're in a... I'd say mini surge right now. We're not in like a full-on surge of where you have 800 to 1,000 uh, copies of the virus per milliliter, but we're at about 600 right now, which is something to contend with for sure. Make sure you're masking up. This is a dangerous situation. Your mask is plan A. Plan B is the vaccine uh, to try to keep your immune system you know, ready to deal with the virus, but that's in the event of a mask failure. Plan A is always don't get infected. You got to avoid infection in the first place. And then again, vaccine is, is your plan B in case the virus gets through and you get infected somehow anyway. But in N95, we trust. But anyway, my point being, um, you know, I think that there's been a lot of chatter about, you know, was this a lab leak? Is it a bioweapon? Most of the people pushing that kind of stuff they're also like anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers. So it's like, it is a bioweapon, but also you don't need to protect yourself. So it's just completely contradictory. Anyway, um, you know, SARS-2 is a very real phenomenon. If there was a scenario, and this is a big if, and again, I do not necessarily subscribe to this, but if there was a scenario where SARS-2 was leaked deliberately by, you know, some... Uh, powerful vested interest you look at the timing on it and uh, it gave a very very good excuse to shut down the economy for a while and inject more money into it and buy a few more years to forestall a 2008 crash remember repo madness was in September 2019 and then it was in December and maybe even November that the uh, first cases of COVID started showing up. So, you know, I'm not saying that that did happen. I'm just saying uh, if if it's ever proven that COVID was, you know, SARS-2 was deliberately leaked, that would be my vote as to why, because it gave them an excuse to shut down the economy and avoid a crash and buy a few more years to try to manage their way out of it. In the end, though, I think it's all in vain because I think that uh, this crash is coming anyway. All right, anyway, but back to the uh, COVID thing for a minute. Yeah, as we were saying, COVID is not over. Here's the six-month view. Um, it stopped climbing for the time being in at least some of the regions, but it's kind of holding steady above 600. It dropped off, you know, plateaued, and it dropped off slightly 
Where it goes from here, we don't know, but this is definitely you need to be masking. Um, this year overall is looking a lot like the dynamics of 2021, which of course was capped off in December and January with Omicron. You know, a, an unparalleled spike, one spike to rule them all, so to speak. Uh, is that coming? I don't know. What I do know is that it's very dangerous to get this virus in your body. Why is that? Well, so with every reinfection, here's one chart, I'll show you another, your risk of a wide variety of negative health outcomes increases. So the green line is one infection, red line is two infections, purple line is three or more infections. So you can see cardiovascular harm, hospitalizations, uh, diabetes, fatigue, gastrointestinal issues, kidney damage, mental health problems, musculoskeletal problems, neurological problems, pulmonary or lung problems. Every reinfection increases your odds of you know, suffering some bad outcome uh, from that. Here's another way of, no, that's the same chart. Hey, there we go. All right, so here's the other chart. And basically this is another way to visualize very similar data. As you can see, with each reinfection, your odds of everything goes up in some cases, you know, more sharply than others, but your odds of hospitalization go way up with your, you know, first reinfection and especially your second reinfection, but it doesn't seem to really level out. All of these keep going up with subsequent reinfections and uh, basically any tissue in your body that has ACE2 receptors on them, which is your brain, your heart, your liver, your kidneys, all of your major organs essentially, uh, those can be infected directly by the virus. It causes all kinds of um, issues. This one alone, I think the, um, you know, this one is enough for me. Even mild COVID-19 can cause your brain to shrink. So getting infected with SARS-2 can cause brain mass loss, memory loss, all kinds of brain problems because it infects, it gets into your brain and it causes inflammation, it causes all kinds of issues. You do not want to get this thing. COVID is not over, so protect yourself and protect others around you. We have to end the pandemic, and the only way to actually do that is to stop transmitting the virus. So the best way to do that is, you know, stop spreading it by wearing a mask. All right. So that said, sort of preliminary stuff out of the way. Let's thank the patrons. So patreon.com slash socialism for all. I'd also like to give a shout out to Jess at the $2 level who signed up after I did this. I think everybody else is reflected on there. No, this one's slightly old. Okay, so there's a few people. Uh, Kevin Kirby, I know, moved up to the $10 level and UV. Uh, UV is at the $10 level. Okay, well, there we go. So patrons, thank you very much for your support. As I always say, you know, I would do some kind of content even if nobody supported but the support financially through Patreon is super helpful for me being able to devote more time consistently to this channel and I appreciate the support. So thank you very much for that. All right. So there we are back onto the regular screen. Now I said most of that stuff. Oh, I did wanna also, so there's not a lot new on the channel. Let me adjust my mic a little bit because I feel like it's still picking up a little bit. Let me... So um, there's not a lot really new posted. As I said, I had a very busy week. However, 
there were a few comments that I feel like I just wanted to say something about because I don't know what to do with these people. You know, I've been doing this channel for three and a half years now. And the amount of just kind of nonsense that comes in in the form of some of these comments. There was a person who had been going through a lot of the videos. Like they were watching and commenting on dozens of videos, you know, in the course of a week. They were clearly just getting, you know, doing a deep dive on the channel. And this person was clearly from more of a right-wing background. And I don't really know exactly why they kept watching all my videos, although they seem to be liking some of them. And they posted something to the effect of like, wow, you know, I have master's degrees in philosophy and theology. Talk about useless theology. But um, anyway, you know, I'm very educated and you're just blowing my mind right now. They were doing some of the uh, Marx and Engels philosophical works. And I'm like, hey, you know, it's amazing what they don't teach you. And you had to come to YouTube to learn, isn't it? And so one of the playlists that they seem to be going through was the Understanding Fascism and Right-Wing Political Movements playlist, which features works from Lenin and Clara Zetkin and Gramsci and all kinds of people who, you know, wrote about fascism from a Marxist perspective. And this person was clearly getting very triggered because they are on the right. And as they said, they vote Republican. And, uh, you know, what is fascism? And I'm like, you're listening to the fascism playlist now. You tell me. <laughs> like, yeah, I know you've listened to enough of these videos. You should be able to tell me what fascism is. They're like, it's something, you know, state control, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, no, no. Fascism is capitalism in crisis. They take whatever measures they need to do to, uh, you know, just shore up capitalist control in the face of a rising workers movement, particularly in the age of imperialism. Fascism is essentially the ideology of imperialism. And, you know, it involves class collaboration and uh, specifically, you know, anti-communism and trying to subvert the class struggle and turn it into national struggle or racial struggle, you know, scapegoating uh, feminists and ethnic and religious minorities and, you know, labor union people and socialists. And, you know, there's a lot of hallmarks of fascism that are pretty clear. I, I sent them some definite, they're like, I'm, what you're saying is fascism is different from the technical definition I'm familiar with. I'm like, I don't think there is a technical definition, but here's what I can tell you from a Marxist perspective. And, you know, Marxists.org, they have a glossary and that is a Trotskyist-run site. You know, it's a well-organized site where you can get, um, you know, very simple, uh, low file size uh, version, you know, easy to download versions of a lot of text. It is run by Trotskyists, though, so anywhere that sort of editorials appear on the site, there often is a Trotskyist bent to that. And so their glossary is one of those areas. And, you know, they'll write about Stalinism or whatever that Trotskyists do. I thought that their fascism entry was decent, though. And so I sent them the fascism entry and I'm like, here, you know, there's your, quote, definition or sort of focused discussion from uh, from a Marxist about what fascism is. You should really, you know, be pretty clear at this point. But they kept just getting triggered about it and they kept trying to wriggle and squirm. And like, you know, clearly they were identifying that some of the political movements they had been involved with and maybe grew up, you know, being uh, socialized into had a lot of these characteristics. You look at the Republican Party in particular, 
it's the most openly reactionary um, and, you know, more and more obviously fascist party, you know, trying to really develop that mass movement of, um, you know, the, the fascist foot soldiers that, that they're developing, you know, trying to blame LGBTQ plus people for like uh, sexual abuse and all kinds of things that's actually perpetrated by the clergy, <laughs> like, you know, other sort of more uh, reactionary and like neo-feudal forces. But this person just didn't want to hear it. And so they're writing to me comments. I'll read you some of them. I have to share some of this pain with you and the audience. Uh, so they give a timestamp. I don't even know what video this is on. There you go again. Your comments are mostly illuminating, but sometimes you use them to unload ammunition at the quote, right. Yeah, I'm a communist fucko. You think I like the right wing? What's wrong with you? Like, do you not understand anything about how this works? Anyway, but then you accuse the right of instigating aggression. Yeah. How do you think they've been holding on to this system? Lots and lots of violence. But I'm just listening and you're the one who keeps insulting me and mine while saying that you're trying to grow the movement. Yeah, I'm trying to grow the movement with communists. I'm not trying to build the movement with people who are still clinging to fascism. That doesn't work. You understand that? Bashing Trump isn't original, and it's pathetic at this point. You're defending Trump in a communist comment section. Go home. I'm taking your keyboard away. Really, you're not allowed to comment anymore. If you still have so much venom, I fear it's a form of bigotry rooted in the simple soil that Donald, they're on a first name basis, is white, male, and rich. My suspicion, anyway. Uh, I know a lot of you are dying with laughter at this point. It's a form... Oh, I fear. Uh, he's so afraid that I might actually be a bigot against white, rich men. My suspicion, anyway. Calling people stupid while preaching to your choir will gain you zero converts. Hey, buddy, you have the problem. You're the one that is not willing to be critical of the right-wing movements you're involved in. You got the problem, not me. All right? Just want to make that super clear. If you're unwilling to look critically at Donald fucking Trump, you don't belong here. You are what we call the backward masses. The most we can hope for with people like you is to contain you. That's it. You're probably never going to come around, and it's fine. I'm not talking to you when I publish these videos. I'm talking to other communists. I'm talking to the advanced masses, as we call them. People have some amount of class consciousness, but have not really studied uh, Marxism, economics, you know, the history of the struggle and so on. Yeah, I don't really care what you think at this point. You're not really my target audience. That's not what we're trying to do here. Again, people this sort of backward, uncritical, and um, so fascist adjacent or just flat out fascist, the best we can do with people like you is sort of contain you. But yeah, I'm not trying to build the movement with people like you. That's not actually going to work. Anyway, so they continued. I have a few more comments from this person. Um, so they put a timestamp. How are you using the word fascist? I thought it was private ownership directed and working with state direction. But the way you use it sounds like fascist means a racist bigot, probably white and almost certainly male. 
that's not true. Women, white women, uh, uphold white supremacy and fascism in the United States. Absolutely, they play a critical role. Um, having nationalist sympathies, yeah, I mean, good. You're starting to understand some of the basics of fascism. And religious commitments, possibly waving a Confederate battle flag. I mean, that's their sort of depiction of what I was saying. I mean, so they're projecting a few things onto there. I don't think I actually talk about Confederate battle flags very often. But, um, I mean, this person knows they just don't want to face it. They know what reactionaries look like. They know that they are one. They know that the people that they, you know, relate with are reactionaries. They just don't really want to accept it. And they're getting triggered. They're getting mad. Uh, and this person had a full-on meltdown when I confronted them about it. So, you know, I'm sorry you're not ready to face this. Come back in a year or two and we'll see. Um, but they were also trying to pull these moves. So here's another comment. Communists say that the revolution will emerges from the excesses of capitalism. I don't really know what you mean there. This, this person had also been watching these videos for like all of about a week or two at this point, And that it is historically inevitable. That's not true. So it's inevitable if you want a future for humanity. Um, capitalism will have a crisis. That much is inevitable. Um, so, but as far as the revolution and socialism, that's not inevitable. It's the absolute most likely next step because history is driven by class struggle and the class that capitalism creates, which is the revolutionary class, is the proletariat. So that is, uh, there's never been a more coherent, more convincing theory of where society goes in historical development after capitalism than that. But it's not completely inevitable. It doesn't have to happen. Um, the world could blow up instead, you know? I mean, so it's inevitable if we want a future for humanity, but it's not inevitable in an absolute sense. Anyway, but they continued here. Yet whenever capitalism runs in rampant excess, I really don't know what you mean by excess. That's not like a hard and fast defined term here. Communists wail and warn of doom, admonishing to admonishing all to do what they can or it might not happen. See my question? I said, I honestly don't see your question. Can you phrase it as a question so that I can actually answer it? All right. So then they continued, and they did phrase it as a question. Wouldn't the most committed communist simultaneously be the most committed capitalist? No. I mean, again, this is why, this is the arrogance. Uh, this is true Dunning-Kruger, by the way. Sometimes um, people misconstrue the meaning of the Dunning-Kruger effect as like a general thing of like stupid people thinking they're smart. Uh, my understanding is it's actually more focused than that. It's people who aren't specialists in an area sort of overestimating how simple it is to understand an area. And this is very common. I've seen this with a lot of right-wingers, particularly people who are like in STEM and have never seriously, you know, academically studied social science at all. And they just assume, oh, it's simple, right? I can just go in there. I can spend two weeks watching YouTube videos and suddenly I will be an expert on socialism and you know historical materialism. No, you fucking can't. It's not that simple. And you're really overestimating your ability to understand it. You're underestimating the amount of expertise involved. I've been doing this channel. It was really after about three years of doing this channel. And I was coming it to coming to that with some basics of, you know, left knowledge that I really felt I knew what I was talking about 
confidently. So no, you coming in with your week or two of watching some of my YouTube videos, you definitely don't know what you're talking about. And, and, and you get these laughable statements like, wouldn't the most committed communist simultaneously be the most committed capitalist? No, because different classes have different interests and therefore different tasks. So it's the task of the bourgeoisie to build up capitalism, you know, and create the nation states and uh, firm up the national market and things like that. Now, there was in Marxism-Leninism um, basically the, the idea that was put into practice, which is uh, completing the bourgeois revolution. So in other words, if the proletarian revolution occurs before many of the bourgeois tasks, which are necessary for building socialism, are complete, then under the guidance of the proletarian state, you would need to do some of that. And that was some of the ideas of like, you know, proletarian government manage state capitalism for a limited amount of time and things like that. You know, and, and this is actually a source of disagreement even among communists of like to what extent that is the case and how exactly to implement that and so on. But there are tasks of the bourgeoisie and then there are tasks of the proletariat and they're not really the same. Although, you know, the, the idea of completing the bourgeois revolution does feature into Marxist thought, but it's not what this person's saying, that communists are the most committed capitalists. No, because uh, since from the excesses of capitalism, the revolution will emerge. That isn't true. Revolutions don't emerge from the excess of capitalism. Revolutions emerge from proletarian class consciousness and organizing. That's where revolutions emerge from. All right. So it's not just capitalism gets really decadent and then there's a revolution. That's not what happens at all. Uh, that might be when fascists come in. And this person definitely leans fascist. That might be when a fascist government says that, you know, the bourgeoisie is leaving capitalism vulnerable and we need to take over and do a more uh, brutal open tyranny so that, um, you know, those dirty Bolsheviks don't come in and have a revolution. But no, the task of the capitalists is to build capitalism and to make profit. I mean, that's that's what they're trying to do. And the task of the proletariat is to get them out of power and then to create an entirely different system of governing society in place of the old capitalist system. So no, it's completely different actually. There is a certain point where a society might not be ready for socialism, uh, but it's still not the proletariat's task to sort of create capitalism. Um, again, there's like nuance to that, but at the level of understanding this person has, they are completely misunderstanding why revolutions happen. They happen because of class consciousness and organizing, and that does not automatically come out of just bad conditions. So anyway, they continued, though, and moreover, we are listening to documents written in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. They all seem to see the revolution as very imminent, but it's 2023 and we keep, learn we keep working longer and harder for less. Yeah, so rather than getting cocky about you know, not understanding these things, you should actually set out to study them. Like, so there were some successful revolutions. Uh, they did not occur in the most advanced imperialist countries. And there are various theories on why that is, such as social chauvinism and basically the, uh, you know, like the UK government and the French government, other imperialist governments, the United States, obviously, 
um, using the super profits from their uh, exploited other countries that they exploit through imperialism to sort of buy off and bourgeoisify the proletariat within those countries where we have seen revolutions is actually more in the fringes like Russia, where capitalism wasn't as strong. There was a bourgeoisie um, and it was emerging out of the you know dying feudalism that existed in Russia. And the socialist movement was strong enough to kind of crush the bourgeoisie before they even really got their government off the ground. Which is, if you go back to 1850, um, the address to the Communist League, uh, just search on Marx on Guns on the channel. Marx and Engels wrote an address to the Communist League that was um, basically laid all this out of how the proletariat should set up councils. Soviet is Russian for council. Uh, the proletariat should set up like a parallel workers' government. And this was in the context of the revolutions of 1848, where like feudalism was being um, dealt another blow in Germany and so on. And so they're saying, look, the bourgeoisie is starting to set up their government as feudalism is overthrown. The proletariat should organize now to basically hit the bourgeoisie before they get off the ground. So the problem that you have in France and the UK and the US and so on, the like imperial core, is that you have uh, the most organized capitalists. It's like the home base, the headquarters. You know, you're sort of inside the police precinct at that point. Everything is surveilled. It's very hard to watch. In Russia, on the other hand, you know, Russian capitalism was lagging. So in the 1905 to 1917 period, they were closer in terms of historical development and, and the strength of the bourgeoisie to where Germany was in like 1850 when Marx and Engels were talking about that. So in my opinion, what the Soviets did in, uh, in the revolutions of you know, 1905, 1917, um, pretty much follows that 1850 piece by Marx and Engels like to a T. And it was very successful there. And you know, they eventually set up the USSR. Of course, there was, you know, years of revolutionary war and, and all that kind of stuff, but it did work. And also in China and other countries around the fringes of uh, capital. I think that this, you know, maybe Marx underestimated the strength of the bourgeoisie. This is also, you know, um, there is a bit of the technological issue of sort of trying to organize a mass movement in a pre-mass media era you know, the 1870s and things like when they when they were writing. Uh, you don't have television and radio and things like that at that point. It's a different environment. People relate differently. The fabric of society, for lack of a better term, is just sort of a bit different at that point. And, um, you know, we have seen the sort of less developed countries that have been, you know, easier to sort of uh, get rid of the bourgeoisie in. So that's been something that uh, Marxism has been updated to reflect that, you know, the, what the practice has shown and, uh, and so on. But again, if you don't understand these things, maybe just don't act so arrogant and, you know, take this attitude of like, you know everything, you don't, you don't barely know anything. And, uh, you know, talking down to communists when there are answers to your questions, you just don't know what they are and you're, you know, treating us like idiots when you're actually just in the dark and, and clueless. So, yeah, as far as the revolution being um, very imminent, 
it's very possible. And of course, you know, most propaganda is written with a tone that's intended to be inspiring of confidence and of the imagination. And it's trying to encourage people to take action. But nothing is set in stone. If that was the case, we wouldn't even have to do propaganda. You could just sit back and let history unfold. But no, people have to be stirred to action. It is a choice. Are you going to organize for socialism this year or aren't you? And, you know, again, it's a choice. History is made by the masses. The masses collectively decide where history is going to go. And, um, you know, so there's a lot of factors that go into that decision and the sort of discourse that's going on and how the bourgeoisie attempts to manipulate. And they've gotten very good at attempting to and successfully manipulating uh, workers' understandings of their political options, of the path to political power, and so on. Anyway, uh, that was maybe the least offensive comment. I've still got two more here. Uh, they time-stamped and criticized, your understanding of the Tea Party movement is shallow. Why? Because I called it an astroturfed front for far-right big business interests and like rich families. That's what it is. It's pseudo-populism, astroturfed by extreme reactionary 1% wealthy interests, trying to push a reactionary social agenda that is not good for workers. It is um, the Tea Party as it emerged after the 2008 crash. And don't forget that. You know, we were just talking about the 2008 crash and how after 15 years, I think it's likely to reemerge basically in a larger form in the next few years. You know, the Tea Party came out of that. I think we will get full on. I mean, we're already very close. You know, keep in mind, fascism is not an on off switch. It's not just like, do you have fascism or do you not have fascism? It's a gradient. There's a process. Fascization. We read an article on this from the Politsturm website in a previous live stream. Fascization is a process. Society gets, you know, increasingly made more and more fascist as civil rights are curtailed and, you know, the police state is rolled out. It doesn't all happen overnight. Although sometimes there's significant upgrades, like after 9-11, the Patriot Act and all that stuff. That was a significant, you know, quantum leap forward with fascization. I think we're going to see that again after the next economic crash. We'll also see more people um, come to the far left and, and be listening to channels like these and joining labor unions and left political parties. Uh, but these are radicalizing, polarizing events. As people's lives get destroyed by economic crashes and distress, they lose their job, they lose their house, they lose their family, and so on. They lose the things that matter to them in the vagaries of the uh, you know boom and bust cycle. Um, they start looking around for answers. They get angry. Some will make the correct choice and become class conscious. Some will still you know refuse to get that populist hook out of their mouth, and they will get dragged over to the right and the Tucker Carlsons and people like that. So uh, the Libertarian Party and and all that other shit. Anyway, so no, my understanding of the Tea Party movement is quite solid. I, you know, remember when it was coming up and Rand Paul, uh, one of the faces of the Tea Party in the 2010 Congress, was uh, calling Obama, and I mean, fucking Obama, you know what I mean? Like, like the face of imperialism, calling Obama un-American or anti-American, I forget which one, 
for um, criticizing BP after that gigantic oil spill, the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. So there's your Tea Party. They're going to call you un-American for criticizing corporations for causing environmental catastrophes, which, I mean, that the impact of that on the um, like seafood industry in places like Louisiana and that, that whole coastal region, devastating, devastating. And uh, there's your fucking Tea Party. It's just a corporate front. That's all it is. It's pseudo-populism. And you look behind it. That's all just corporate money. That's all it is. Anyway, they continue. They're going to give me some educational recommendations. I think you could really profit by actually speaking with some of these people. Believe me, I know Tea Party people. I, back in the 2000s, before there was a Tea Party, I was talking to these people and libertarians. And yeah, I, I'm very, very well versed in, in what their points are. With some of these people you call stupid and insane and dumb. I, I you know, this is again their, their shorthand of what I'm saying. But uh, anyway, uh, last comment from this whiner. Um, Timestamp. Yeah, but doesn't the Communist Manifesto advise to ally with whomever to advance the revolution? I asked them for a, um, a quote on that. Never got one. And uh, they said, also, I think that anything right wing is, quote, extreme far right wing in your mind. Yeah, what can I say? We live in incredibly advanced imperialism and the right wing is extremely far right. Yes. You know, if you're still hanging on to capitalism in 2023, you are right wing and most of the right wing has gone extremely far right. Yeah. So, I mean, that may be that that's <laughs> that's what it is in my mind, but I can also give you an evidence based case that that is accurate. I mean, the things that uh, the Libertarian Party says now, if you tried to say that mid-century, uh, you know, after World War II, you'd have been like laughed out of the room as a Nazi. But now that's coming back and it's becoming normalized. So, yeah, the right wing is extremely far right now. I mean, the Democratic Party is right wing as well. Uh, they, they need to do more of a show of trying to play to a liberal base for votes and things. But I mean, they're right wing as well. Two imperialist parties trying to uphold and expand imperialism. That's what you got for the system. And they keep moving further and further right with every year. I mean, they're trying to like, uh, like eradicate trans people in the Republican Party now. I mean, I, let me rephrase that. The Republican Party is trying to like eradicate trans people. You know, they in the Republican Party are trying to eradicate trans people like entirely. They're trying to like basically foment pogroms to like crush anyone that they deem is, you know, uh, some kind of social undesirable. So, yeah, I mean, we're living in a stage of uh, rising fascism, which is already at least, you know, halfway uh, fully there, if not more, you know, kids in cages at the border like that's there's a massive crisis going on. You know, we we're talking about the 2008 crash and what they were doing on the economic side to try to keep the system on life support and buy it time and forestall a crash. Look at all the political things as well that they're doing to distract people from what's actually going on. So anyway, uh, they, they conclude with, I say this because you may be unintentionally pushing listeners like me away because we vote Republican. Why are you voting Republican? Why? Why would you vote Republican ever? They're the most openly reactionary party. They don't believe in climate change. 
they're like just basically a white nationalist party. Yes, I push away white nationalists. What the fuck is wrong with you? I mean, if people want to give up fascism, you know, this is socialism for all. You can listen to this channel, whoever you are. I don't have to listen to your shit, whoever you are. But you're welcome to listen to it. You want to give up your fascism? You want to give up your racism? <laughs> I want you to, believe me. But if you're going to sit there and cry and cling to your Republican Party and then call me the problem, you're the fucking problem. You're the problem. And until you get that through your head, you're never going to change. You're never going to get it. You know, why would you come to a channel and a political movement that's about radical, revolutionary social change, but you're in a political party right now that opposes even the mildest kinds of social change as if they were like, you know, life and death issues. So you're not interested in any kind of social change under capitalism, but you want some kind of radical social change? No, you don't. So let's be honest, who's pushing whom away here? So anyway, they continue. The way that you talk kind of implies that you ultimately believe we are all Hitlers in waiting. Yeah, I got news for you. A lot of people in the United States today are acting like Hitlers in waiting. Yes, many, many are. And let me tell you, if like you took Hitler's exact uh, steps and, and exact program and everything else and put it back out there, I guarantee you, you would have immense support from it from, from people like you. You know, people who can't tell the difference between fascism and communism. Yeah, we don't need you in the communist movement. What we do need is people who are class conscious, know what side they're on, and are willing to fight for it. If you can't tell the difference between fascism and communism, stay the fuck away. But I mean, you know, we'll have to deal with you eventually because you're loud and proud and ignorant. And you just wander around. You're so used to having the privilege that you have to just go on just blathering your ignorance that no doubt we're going to run into you eventually. But, um, you know, in the event that, uh, that you have any moment of clarity, let me say on behalf of everyone, shut the fuck up. I mean, really, shut up. You're wrong and you're loudly wrong. No one likes that. Uh, so anyway, uh, that was that was about the end of that. On a bit more of a focused thing, uh, there was another person who was writing on another platform. You gotta love this. So this person has a low follower account. I'm not gonna, you know, again, with all of these, we don't need to put the actual thing on the screen. Um, but this person says, and this was after, this was like right after I posted the live stream 106, which is about the pseudo anti-imperialist Russian, Russian capitalist class. They're saying, I'd like to, uh, I think that Socialism for All should consider reading a book like Killing Hope, well-known book about CIA interventions and all the dirty deeds that the CIA does to advance U.S.-centered imperialism, as it could help him understand certain aspects of analysis required in the Russia-NATO proxy war. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Thank you for trying to elevate my understanding. Yes, I have known that book since about 2005, so yeah. Anyway, reducing this multifaceted conflict to a mere, quote, inter-imperialist struggle. Excuse me, who said anything about a mere inter-imperialist struggle? 
Inter-imperialist struggles turn into world wars. There's nothing mere, there's nothing minor about them. It's a major issue. And they put inter-imperialist struggle in quotes as if that isn't a phenomenon that Lenin and, you know, this is core to Marxism-Leninism, is understanding. If you don't understand what an inter-imperialist struggle is, check out, you're done. Like, you do not meet the minimum required to participate in this conversation. If you do not understand what an inter-imperialist struggle is, you do not meet the minimums, and you need to understand that before you have a opinion on this publicly. All right. So trying to reduce uh, the Russia-NATO conflict to a mere inter-imperialist struggle not only risks coming across as offensive, well, heavens to Betsy, you know, I wouldn't want to offend any of the fucking Russia trolls that are on Twitter. I mean, and it's, the site is basically unusable at this point in the political realm for that. You go on other places, you don't see that. Uh, anyway, but... Um, it reveals a substantial lack of comprehension regarding the intricate interests at play. I mean, dripping with, uh, I think this person was trying to cash in every $5 word, you know, in their vocabulary, but this conflict extends beyond a mere power struggle. It encompasses Russia's pivotal role in the emerging multipolar world order, the imperative of its survival, and the complex issues surrounding its immediate proximity to the conflict zone. What are you saying? Like, what are you saying? So, I don't know if you know this, capitalism and imperialism are global systems and Russia is a part of that system. Alright? You had Western companies in Russia, they have pulled out for the time being to try to punish Russia and show it who's boss. It's a global system. You are the one who doesn't understand this, not me. All right. And as far as this multipolar world order, no. The multipolar world order will resolve itself before very long in a world war. That's what history tells us, and that's what you know, capitalist competition demands. If you actually get serious competition, that is what happens. And the war starts out not necessarily with military conflict, but by other means, with sanctions and other things. Anyway, so make the case that Russia is so imperative. I don't. So okay, you're saying Russia, the imperative of its survival. Why? Why is it imperative? Make the case. All right. So it also involves the critical dimension of the influence of fascism in Ukraine. Fascism is basically everywhere in the world now, but and the broader implications for the stabilization of Europe. What does this mean? Which can be easily overlooked by those distant from the region. Make the case. You're just saying words at this point. This underscores the significance of looking beyond a one-dimensional interpretation. What is the one dimension I'm looking at? Class struggle? I mean... the. This is a Marxist-Leninist channel. That's mainly what we look at is class struggle. You know, it's we, d we don't actually want to go too far beyond that because the primary thing that we want to look at. Basically, anything else can be subsumed into capitalism and used for capitalism's benefit. The contradiction between labor and capital is really the one thing that cannot be. Anyway... This underscores the significance of looking beyond a one-dimensional interpretation and highlights the need to consider the geopolitical intricacies involved. This person has said absolutely nothing so far in terms of substantiating anything, any of these claims. Okay, you're declaring it's imperative. You're declaring it's hard to understand and intricate. 
Lay it on me, man. I'm waiting. We're like four tweets in now. Furthermore, characterizing the situation as inter-imperialism overlooks the considerable support Russia garners from anti-imperialist states across the globe, including socialist nations. Recent diplomatic interactions such as Kim Jong-un's visit to Vladimir Putin illustrate the depth of this support. They need some economic things from Russia. And there are countries that have uh, abstained from votes to condemn Russia. And, you know, these things change as time goes on. The Russia has been invading Ukraine for uh, about a year and a half now. And... Uh, but, you know, Cuba, for example, has emphatically declared that it's neutral. However, it depends in some ways on Russia economically. So it can't offend it to a certain degree or it's jeopardizing its own survival. So if you can't tell the difference between that, I'm not impressed. But that's not what makes or breaks something as inter-imperialist conflict. What makes or breaks it as, you know, is this an imperialist power is not like, oh, well, uh, North Korea said that it was good, you know, because they depend on Russia in certain key ways and and are ge geographically close to them and they don't want to risk pissing Russia off too much. That's not how we determine what is an imperialist country. We look at, is it meeting the criteria of imperialism as laid out by Lenin, which is what we're going to talk about right after this. But you probably don't know even what those are, so therefore you're just going on this sort of popularity contest sort of definition of what is an imperialist country. Okay. Uh, simplifying the conflict in such a manner. No, you're simplifying the conflict. You're simplifying it as, you know, just basically it's a popularity contest. Whoever in the UN is for Russia, and maybe because they depend on Russia or they think that they can get a better deal for the time being, from Russia on whatever materials they need to get from Russia. I mean, that, that's not the same thing as doing analysis of, is this an imperialist country? That's hugely short-sighted and, I mean, like laughably short-sighted uh, because you're not actually getting into the reasons why, like taking every abstention from condemning Russia as an endorsement of Russia as anti-imperialist is like, such a leap in logic it's hard to even characterize it as far as how much that is not doing marxist-leninist analysis all right anyway risks neglecting the larger geopolitical context and the alliances formed in response blah 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 um i'm trying to skim down to like something that is not just sort of uh high sounding rhetoric this perspective appears to overlook the principles of dialectical analysis, which are intrinsic to Marxist ideology. Look in a mirror, buddy, because you have not done any of that analysis. And I feel like this is just, I've been doing this channel for three and a half years, and this is the kind of bullshit that just keeps showing up on the doorstep. And then you get these people um, trying to make a case for, you know, Russia's not imperialist without actually making the case, but just declaring, uh, making declarations, you know, making claims, but not uh, showing up with evidence. And this person wound up writing about a dozen uh, posts in this thread. Anyway, by disregarding the possibility that Marxists can strategically align with what they perceive as progressive forces, even by that definition, Russia is not a progressive force. Russia is an imperialist power. 
if you're refusing to even look at that, we have nothing to talk about. Anyway, it disregards an intricate, I think this is the third or fourth time they said intricate, ideological terrain and renders Marxists obsolete in a pivotal moment of history. No, it doesn't. Marxists are the people out trying to rebuild the labor movement and trying to keep people out of the clutches of whoever fucking got to you and is trying to twist your head to think that just cheering on Russia is how we build Marxism. So I don't even know what to say. There's there's not an ounce of merit in what has been said so far. They're just repeating what their favorite streamer said. They've presented no evidence. And uh, why? Why do you do this? Like, why do people waste their time with this? By the way, the only reason I saw this, I was giving out blue sky codes on Twitter. And um, I checked my notifications for literally the first time in two months because I was looking for trying to find somebody who responded to the blue sky invite post thing. And I saw this person had mentioned me. I was just like, what are you even doing here? It's so bizarre. Anyway, for Marxists to break free from Western exceptionalism, what does this mean? The primary task is to struggle for a multipolar world order. No, it isn't. Whoever told you that is wrong and you're wrong for repeating it. All right. Uh, as, a, as an alternative to the permanent counter-revolutionary influence of U.S. hegemony, unipolarity. No, imperialism is a global system. Russia is not really breaking out of it. They have nothing else to offer any more than Nazi Germany did in, you know, opposing, quote, imperialist UK and France a century ago. It's, they have nothing fundamentally different to offer. It's just more capitalism, specifically more advanced capitalism, more imperialism, all right? And they will eventually have a war to settle who is really the big dog and who gets to divide up global profits. So anyway, it is evident that Socialism for All's stance on this particular issue could greatly benefit from a more intellectually rigorous examination. You wrote 12 posts of hot air. I don't know how else to say it, or 11, whatever this is. Um, this is pure blather. There, there's no substance to this at all, what you said. At all. And before you get online and just start writing pages, to me, someone who does not know you, does not care about what you think, just think about where your life is going. Why did you do this? It's so bizarre. And again, I, I happen to see this. I, who knows how many of these I've missed. I caught this because I was giving out blue sky codes. Uh, who knows how many other fucking weirdos are writing shit like this that I'm never going to see. But um, I think they ended with this gem. I think one must truly comprehend the imperialism of one's own country before pointing at Russia. Let's go back to the first post. Or uh, second post, sorry. Reducing this conflict to a mere inter-imperialist struggle, dot, dot, dot. Can anyone find the logical flaw here? One must truly comprehend the imperialism of one's own country before pointing at Russia. Well, isn't that exactly what labeling it an inter-imperialist conflict acknowledges? So not only have you not presented evidence, you can't even follow the logic of the claim that you're making against me, that I don't acknowledge U.S. imperialism, except that you yourself just pointed out that I do acknowledge it, by calling this, I, I, like, just words are failing at this point, by acknowledging it as an inter-imperialist conflict, if the sides are 
Russia and the U.S. and its proxies, then I guess I did acknowledge the U.S. as an imperialist country. For fuck's sake. I Anyway. Um, this person is not noteworthy. I don't know who they are, but it's just an example of the random crap you find online and just why I could not give less of a shit at this point. I am so bored with the terminally online communist world. Log the fuck off. Do something useful in your community. Stop simping for Russia. It's it's just... We're going to see another economic crash, most likely, in the next one to three years, which I think will probably dwarf 2008, because they've pushed uh, dumping cash into the economy as far as it can possibly go. The inflation is super high, and the prices alone are just pushing people out of the market. Again, the housing market is basically crawling to a stop and so on. So there's like a major economic event that is on the horizon. And what's your fucking priority is a multipolar world order? What are you even talking about? It's infuriating. So anyway, um, coming off of this, we'll eventually get to the chat today. Let's look at excerpts from a piece somebody sent in. I think it was Albasort. Thank you. This is called, Is China an Imperialist Country? Now, this is like a 120-page PDF. I'm not going to be able to read it all. But I excerpted some of the first few sections, and I'd like to read a few screens from this. It's, Is China an Imperialist Country? Considerations and Evidence by N.B. Turner et al. from March 2014. So pretty recent, like nine, you know, nine and a half years ago, uh, from red-path.net. And that site doesn't seem to be current, uh, seems to be Marxist, Leninist, Maoist in orientation. Just remind folks, I'm not a Maoist, or I mean, specifically a Marxist, Leninist, Maoist. Maoist means different things to different people. Uh, I consider myself an anti-revisionist Marxist, Leninist, but um, not necessarily. It's not to say I disagree with everything about Marxism, Leninism, Maoism. I appreciate that it is uh, anti-revisionist with respect to particular questions. I just... Um, you know, I, I don't accept all the claims of it that it's necessarily a third and higher stage and so on at this point, but we agree, I think, probably on most uh, important questions there. Anyway, let's get into some of this because it hits on the questions of, you know, what is imperialism from a Marxist-Leninist perspective? How does this get distorted? And so on. And it deals with China in particular, but also uh, Russia. So let's begin. One, what does it mean today to say that a country is an imperialist one? We Marxist, Leninist, Maoists follow Lenin in our conception of what imperialism is in the modern capitalist era. That is to say, we use the term imperialism, or what we often also refer to as capitalist imperialism, to be clearer, in a sense somewhat different from the traditional non-Marxist, Leninist sense of imperialism in the ancient world, or even in the earlier capitalist period. Imperialism, in this Leninist sense, which again, if you're coming onto this channel to talk to Marxist-Leninists about imperialism, you know, so you don't waste your time and ours and everybody's time and everybody's energy, don't talk about imperialism unless you're talking about imperialism in the Leninist sense, is the modern stage of capitalism. Quoting Lenin, Imperialism is capitalism in that stage of development in which the dominance of monopolies and finance capital has established itself, in which the export of capital has acquired pronounced importance, in which the division of the world among the international trusts, 
very large conglomerated financial concerns has begun in which the division of all territories of the globe among the biggest capitalist powers has been completed, unquote. Okay, so that's in a nutshell what we're talking about and there are particular characteristics uh, of it, but that's in a nutshell what we're talking about when we talk about imperialism as the highest stage of capitalism, the modern stage of capitalism. Lenin was declaring it in the early 20th century, over a century ago, and yes, that is the stage that we are in. Any advanced capitalist power is going to be uh, you know, vying for a seat at the table. But beyond that, as we get into it, it's not just about individual countries. It's about imperialism as a multi-country system. So let's continue. Note that there have been some secondary changes in the situation since Lenin's time. For example, international trusts, or what Lenin called international trusts, now generally take the form of multinational or transnational corporations. MNCs or TNCs. Similarly, the former direct colonies owned as exclusive preserves by individual capitalist powers are now most often nominally independent neo-colonies open to more general predation by all the capitalist power centers. But in its essence, Lenin's definition of capitalist imperialism is still completely valid, and it's the one that we still adhere to. Lenin also stated that, quote, if it were necessary to give the briefest possible definition of imperialism, we should have to say that imperialism is the monopoly stage of capitalism, unquote. As distinct from what? The pre-monopoly stage of capitalism. What I think of as, you know, the Wild West, sort of more 19th century capitalism, where there were still a lot more remnants of feudalism. Capitalism was an emerging and ascendant power that was still building uh, nation states to create national markets that hadn't yet exceeded the capacity of the national market and hadn't yet started to export capital and things like that. But Lenin was declaring that if it were necessary to give the briefest possible definition of imperialism, we would have to say that it is the monopoly stage of capitalism. Is Russia in the monopoly stage of capitalism? Abso-fucking-lutely. So, its concerns are going to be imperialist concerns as it conducts business. It is conducting business on a global scale as an imperialist power. It's not as established as, you know, some of the U.S. and the U.K. and so on. It is more of a new kid at the table. Uh, but it's absolutely, that's the level that it is attempting to operate on. It used to be at a higher stage of uh development socialism and then suffered a counter-revolution fell back into capitalism but it yeah it's in the uh advanced monopoly stage of capitalism so anyway marxist paul has a good video on this from like last year it's very easy to show uh you know all of the important industries are are monopolies in russia so anyway imperialism in the ancient or traditional sense of being simply the domination and economic exploitation of one country by another is still an essential aspect of imperialism in the Leninist sense. Imperialism in the narrow sense of a country being dominated and exploited by one or more other countries, in fact, characterizes modern capitalism as much as monopoly does, and is essential to it. But now there is a lot more to what we mean by imperialism. As explained by one recent writer, quote, we Marxist-Leninists seek not merely to describe the political surface of society, but to probe the material underpinnings and bring to light the economic factors and relationships which lead to those political circumstances. 
Lenin made the choice to use the term imperialism, not just to refer to certain political priorities of aggression, conquest, and foreign control, but more importantly to refer to an economic system that depends upon such policies for its very existence. This is a profound new meaning for the term imperialism, unquote. So before we go on to the next screen there, again, Lenin is saying that imperialism, if you were to just pare it down to one sentence, is the monopoly stage of capitalism. Okay. And then expanding beyond that, we have imperialism is capitalism in that stage of development in which the dominance of monopolies and finance capital has established itself, in which the export of capital has acquired pronounced importance, in which the division of the world among the international trusts has begun, or transnational corporations now, in which the division of all territories of the globe among the biggest capitalist powers has been completed. Okay. Two, many Marxists don't fully share Lenin's new conception of imperialism, but many people, including many who are influenced by Marxism-Leninism, and who may even view themselves as Marxist-Leninists or Marxist-Leninist-Maoists, don't really use the term imperialism in the way that Lenin did. They haven't really grasped his conception. They still tend to use the term more in the traditional way, as a reference only to direct military conquest and control, rather than to a new stage of capitalism. Some vaguely Marxist-influenced individuals are quite open about this, such as the third world theorist Samir Amin, quoting Amin, Imperialism is not a stage, and not even the highest stage of capitalism. So anyway, take your Lenin, tear it right in half, according to this guy. Uh, from the beginning, it is inherent in capitalism's expansion. The imperialist conquest of the planet by the Europeans and their North American children was carried out in two phases and is perhaps entering a third. So this is a complete rejection of Lenin's conception and an insistence on using the word imperialism in its old sense. I want to point out that Samir Amin wrote a pretty prominent book. Uh, I want to say it's called Un Unequal Development or Uneven Development. I think it's Unequal Development. But I know that this was on, for example, uh, one of Hakim's recommended reading lists. So just beware, because you'll hear people, and there might even be interesting facts and concepts in a book like that, and it might be worth reading. But if you're serious about Marxism-Leninism, then you have to stick to that and not override our understanding of Marxism with somebody that is not teaching Marxism. You know, you can read things by non-Marxist, even anti-Marxist authors, which may have interesting facts in them. But in terms of your theory and analysis, you cannot just accept that and still claim to be Marxist-Leninist. And in keeping with this, Amin only sees three imperialist centers in the world, the so-called triad, the uh, U.S., Europe, and Japan, and refuses to accept that China could possibly be a new imperialist power. For him, China has long been part of the, quote, third world, or the, quote, periphery, or the, quote, south and could never change into anything else. So there's a footnote there. Of course, even imperialist countries such as Japan, Italy, and Russia, and China, as we will discuss later, have participated in imperialist wars and adventures to some limited degree. Post-USSR Russia, for example, now remember, this is from 2014, so well prior to the Ukraine thing, but post-USSR Russia, for example, has used military force against its southern neighbor, Georgia, as well as against internal colonies such as Chechnya and Dagestan. 
As we complete this essay, Russia appears to be using its military force to dismember Ukraine. So yeah, this was after the, or this was the beginning of the current conflict in uh, 2014, which then sort of started coming to a head in 2022 with the uh, with the actual invasion. Of course, the groundwork for that was laid earlier in uh, in 2014. Moreover, views such as those of Amin seem to have had a considerable influence on many others and are promoted by influential forces on the, quote, left, such as Monthly Review magazine. However, a more common sort of view within Marxist-Leninist Maoist circles is to accept Lenin's definition of imperialism in words, but to nevertheless still somehow feel that no country can actually be an imperialist one unless it is at or near the top of the heap in terms of military power and frequent engagement in wars of aggression against other countries, such as the U.S. That is to say, despite their verbal agreement that imperialism is a stage of capitalism, they still somehow feel that it has more to do with direct and immediate military aggression. When it is pointed out that there are other countries, such as Japan, Italy, and Russia, which are certainly imperialist countries, but which are not at present much engaged in military aggression, you know, compared to the U.S.'s war on terror, for example, that the U.K. was like very involved in and so on, and, and NATO and Afghanistan and so on. They have no good response, but they still feel in their bones that a country can't really be an imperialist one unless it is like the U.S. and at open war with much of the world. Their central conception of what it means to be imperialist is still the traditional military concept, not the Marxist-Leninist socioeconomic concept of a new stage of capitalism. Three, is the U.S. the only imperialist country, or is there an imperialist system? It is discomforting for some people to think even of countries like Britain, Germany, and France as imperialist countries, because really, when they think of imperialism, they're actually only thinking of the United States. The United States is imperialism for some people. They view this as an identity. To oppose imperialism is simply to oppose the United States. To build a united front against imperialism is to build the unity of virtually all the countries of the world against the United States. Now, does this have a familiar ring to it? Because this is exactly what we're living through now in 2022-2023. People like Brian Becker of PSL and Answer. This is the whole uh, Russia-centric, you know, rally the world behind Russia. And as long as you're against the United States, then you're, quote, anti-imperialist. This is exactly what we're dealing with with the multipolarity people. It's not that imperialism is a stage of capitalism. It's not that imperialism is a global system. It's just the United States. No doubt, the United States is a particularly heinous, egregious example of, you know, vulgar displays of military force. It's disgusting. But that's not what we're talking about when we talk about imperialism in a Marxist-Leninist sense. And if you don't want to talk about it in a Marxist-Leninist sense, then fine, but Fuck off. Get out of the Marxist-Leninist space. And, you know, but see, it's a threat. So that's why they'd have to try to co-opt it. That's why they have to come into our space and try to claim to be Marxist-Leninist or Marxist and Leninist, as PSL does, um, you know, crypto-trot. But um, they have to try to co-opt Marxism because it's the weapon that can be used against the system. And it turns what they're doing on its head anyway. Or, if they admit that Britain, Germany, and France 
might be junior partners of the U.S. in its imperial wars, then they still see countries like Russia and China as potential allies, quote, against imperialism. And similarly, for murderous local dictators in individual, economically underdeveloped, quote, third world countries, such as Saddam Hussein in Iraq, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, Bashar al-Assad in Syria, or the Islamic theocratic regime in Iran, who these people are always trying to find excuses for or to support outright in the name of, quote, opposing imperialism. Absolutely. You see this all the time. It's incredibly, you know, when I started really studying Marxism, I was shocked at the extent uh, of, of exactly what they're describing in this paragraph here. I mean, just, again, made my head spin. I couldn't believe it. Uh, I spent most of 2020 in sort of half oblivious and half in denial of it. By 2021, I was like, all right, something's got to be done here. <laughs> and then by 2022, uh, you know, was uh, joining the war on pseudo-anti-imperialism. But like, holy shit, you got these people out there claiming to be experts. And then that's a very good summary, actually, that paragraph of uh, what they're doing. Anyway, and again, this was written almost a decade ago. And some people who, even in the face of ever-mounting and by now conclusive evidence, finally grudgingly admit that China is an imperialist country, at least according to Lenin's definition, nevertheless still think of China, and often also Russia, as being important forces to ally with. Consider, for example, Jose Maria Sison, the chairperson of the International League for People's Struggle. So... People who are big champions of the struggle in the Philippines take note here. Uh, in 2012, I was really surprised at this. When I was skimming this document, this is one of the first things that caught my eye. And I was like, oh, I have to read more of this document because are you kidding me? In 2012, Sison denounced the, quote, false claim that China is, quote, rising as an imperialist rival of the United States. However, more recently still, he modified his stance and stated in an interview, okay, so he came back from that. But what that tells me is, if you were out in online communist land in 2012, all of the anime profile picture Twitter Maoists would have been fighting you if you called, uh, you know, they would have been like, it's a false claim, it's a false claim. I just honestly, this again, why I have just stopped caring about the opinions of virtually, there's, there's a small list of people who's, um, knowledge I respect and whose analysis I trust and, you know, who I actually look up to because they do the reading and they know what the fuck they're talking about. And I do the reading too. And I know that they know what the fuck that they're talking about. So many other people barely do anything and they just sort of go off of what their favorite streamer or whatever said. But it's like, yeah, wow, that was 2012. Was China's position substantially different then? I don't think so. But anyway, so anyway, Sison more recently modified his stance and stated in an interview, quote, Indeed, the Dungist counter-revolution resulted in the restoration of capitalism in China and its integration into the world capitalist system. By Lenin's economic definition of modern imperialism, China may qualify, so even then it's tamped down with may qualify as imperialist, bureaucrat and private monopoly capital has become dominant in Chinese society. Bank capital and industrial capital are merged. So you got finance capital there. That's what that is. China is exporting surplus capital to other countries. 
its capitalist enterprises combine with other foreign capitalist enterprises to exploit Chinese labor, third world countries, and the global market. China colludes and competes with other imperialist countries in expanding economic territory, such as sources of cheap, cheap labor and raw materials, fields of investments, markets, strategic vantage points, and spheres of influence. However, China has not yet engaged in a war of aggression to acquire a colony, a semi-colony, protectorate, or dependent country. It is not yet very violent in the struggle for a redivision of the world among the big capitalist powers. It is with respect to China's contention with more aggressive and plunderous imperialist powers that may be somehow helpful to revolutionary moments in an objective and indirect way. China is playing an outstanding role in the economic bloc BRICS and in the security organization, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, beyond U.S. control. So, end of quote there. And there's a footnote from the author. The International League of People's Struggle, headed by Sison ILPS, uh, under Jose Maria Sison's leadership and one of the Trotskyist parties in the U.S., the Workers' World Party, are two of the organizations that frequently support such reactionary leaders and their vicious regimes. We must oppose U.S. or other foreign imperialist intervention in these countries, but that certainly does not mean that we should in any way support these murderous regimes themselves or refrain from strongly condemning them. It's important to understand this distinction. And I'll comment, this distinction seems to go completely over people's heads. Again, the policy of revolutionary defeatism is you want to see, quote, your own, it's not really yours because it belongs to a different class, but your home country's bourgeoisie, you want to see them defeated. You want to see them fail. You don't want to see them successfully expand and so on. But nor do you want the opposing national bourgeoisie of some other country to win. You want defeat all around. Why? Because what are Marxists interested in? Are we just interested in setting up a multipolar world order like that idiot fucking commenter? This is why also just get off of Twitter. It's such a waste of time. You know, I opened a Twitter account. I did it for two years to, like, promote S4A. Um, no doubt I met a few quality people, but, like, by and large, I just kind of drove myself nuts reading ignorant, misinformed, and probably paid troll comments. And just get off of Twitter. It's the biggest fucking waste of time. It stresses people out. It's just whatever you're doing, it's more worthwhile than using that site and just engaging in fucking garbage day in and day out. Anyway, uh, where even was I? So yeah, go back to Lenin, revolutionary defeatism. You know, we have it on the channel. There's a whole playlist, uh, Lenin on war and nationalism. And uh, it's very, very clear what the Marxist-Leninist view of inter-imperialist conflict is. It's defeat of one's, quote, own country. Paving the way for what? Social revolution. We're not interested in the multipolar order it's social revolution. And again, as we've discussed before, this kind of view is often called campism. But campism was actually more valid than what this is. This is Deng's three worlds theory. Deng Xiaoping in the late 70s started the capitalist restoration in China in a big way. Bourgeois factions started coming out on top. And they introduced this three worlds theory, um, which basically had the USSR and the US as the first world all of the more satellite countries like the U.S. and France and Canada as the second world, and then the developing world as, as the third world, and that the third world needed to be supported sort of regard, like unconditionally, 
more or less. I'm simplifying, and we'll get into this in more depth uh, in future videos. Uh, I mean, there's there's like a big thing written about it. It's not hard to find if you look on Marxist.org. There was like a thing in um, the Chinese papers about it uh, where they, you know, tout it as like a major contribution. They also try to attribute it to Mao Zedong, although that is, you know, hotly contested. Uh, you know, some people say, yes, like Mao contributed to that or not. And, and then, you know, some people say Mao had some alternate version. I think that what Mao was doing had very similar um, core features. Anyway, the problem with this is, you know, if we're sort of supporting the third world in this way, it in large part glosses over class struggle within the third world or developing world. So again, trying to keep um, the contradiction between labor and capital in the forefront, Dungas third world theory really overrides that and um, leads, I think, directly to opportunism in uh in some key ways there but anyway let's continue with this piece there's just a couple more screens china only quote may qualify as an imperialist country note also in the second paragraph above how Sisan seems to still view the acquisition of colonies or semi-colonies protectorates etc as being essential to imperialism in other words the way that it was before world war ii there's something quite outdated in his conception and note especially how Sison portrays China as a more palatable or acceptable form of imperialism, if it is to be called that at all, which still seems to him to be able to play a positive role in the world. This is tending dangerously close and may even have crossed the line to proclaiming, quote, our imperialism versus, quote, theirs. A fundamental error. However, it's not just the U.S. imperialists who are the enemy of the people of the world even if they are at present the strongest and most vicious enemy. All imperialist countries are the enemy of the people, and all of them must be opposed. The entire imperialist system must be opposed and overthrown. And opposing imperialism should never come to mean supporting local tyrants and local enemies of the people, who, after all, were usually set up as imperialist lackeys and agents in the first place. Saddam Hussein being a very good example uh, you know, the whole thing of the, the picture of him, like buying the chemical weapons from uh, Rumsfeld and shaking hands back in 83. Anyway, the key point that those who hold such views do not understand is that there is an imperialist system. The world imperialist system as it presently exists is, in fact, dominated by the U.S., especially militarily. That's part of the reason this country is such a shithole with like so few social welfare programs and etc. Um, now, I know that the composition of the military has been changing somewhat in the last like couple of decades where it's been more, um, and I have to look this up, but and we covered this in a previous stream. There's more, I think it's more um, second generation military people because you do actually get paid in the military uh, unlike, you know, <laughs> what, what happens out there in the very... Um, dubious world of seeking employment, uh, you know, you can actually get like a guaranteed career in the military. I'm not trying to justify it, but, you know, people who are not class conscious may be attracted to that and just assuming that they're fighting, quote, bad guys or whatever and get involved with it. Although some of them go in, you know, just they want to kill uh, people of different nationalities or whatever. Like I said, we covered this in a previous thing. But uh, historically, the economic draft was a thing. Again, that's been changing a bit um, especially in the last two decades, 
because they need more college-educated people in the military due to um, the increasingly technological character of military operations. Like, you need to actually be a bit more educated. You know, it's gone are the days when, um, you know, it's just purely, like, grunts with, like, a 10th grade education kind of thing. They actually need people in the uh, U.S. Armed Forces who can, you know, use computers and kind of advanced stuff at this point. So anyway, covered that in a previous live stream. But anyway, the U.S. is uh, like the major military arm of imperialism for sure. And financially as well, it, it dominates. And you can see that reflected, my point is, in the, uh, you know, sort of social composition and uh, national flavor of what is put out there as far as cultural expectations and mandates for people being socialized in the U.S. that they would, uh, you know, grow up in a very militaristic culture. Um, you know, all those superhero movies, ex intensely militaristic, that have been so popular in this war on terror era and so on. So clearly there's like a strong drive to um, create that, that kind of person as the U.S. serves as that military arm of imperialism. All right, anyway... But all the other imperialist countries, including not only Britain, Germany, France, Italy, and Japan, but also Russia and China, are now part of and participants in this imperialist system. All these countries, and even some others, including Holland, Belgium, Canada, Australia, and South Korea, benefit from this imperialist system and share in the plunder of the less economically developed countries, and in the joint exploitation of the working people of the whole world that this system makes possible. Everything has a history, and the world imperialist system also has a history. It developed out of the old system of quite separate empires, consisting of colonies, which were the exclusive preserve of one or another capitalist imperialist country. This system proved to be unstable. The colonies kept rebelling and demanding freedom. And new imperialist powers arose, such as the U.S., Germany, and Japan, which did not have many colonies, and were thus compelled to try to take some away from the existing empires. This led not only to fairly small wars, such as the Spanish-American War, in which the U.S. stole some of Spain's colonies, but then to two large, horribly destructive world wars, and even to mass genocide by the Germans in Europe, the Japanese in China, Britain in India through famine, and the U.S. via atom bombs in Japan. Even from the point of view of the imperialist powers with a lot of colonies, there were some serious economic limitations due to the colonial system. While they could keep out other powers from their own colonies, they were in turn kept out of the colonies owned by those other powers. This meant that there was an inherent inflexibility in options for the export of capital in the colonial imperialist era, even for the strongest imperialist countries. So objectively, capitalist imperialism needed to change in a way that would allow a free scope for the worldwide predations by all the imperialist powers operating under agreed-upon rules of quote-unquote fair play, including for new imperialist powers if they arose, and at the same time to grant nominal quote freedom to the colonies. These are the basic reasons why the older-style capitalist imperialism based on exclusive colonies that existed before World War II, was soon transformed into the new world imperialist system based on neocolonialism after that war. Footnote, we're using the term neocolonialism in a broad sense, which typically means that the country in question is, in effect, 
the collective property of all the capitalist imperialist powers. Sometimes this is also called post-colonialism. We're not using the term neocolonialism in the sense it is occasionally used by some to mean a country that is a hidden colony of a single capitalist imperialist power, such as perhaps the same power which formerly controlled it as an open colony. And I'll comment that um, that's also like the meaning of neocolonialism I've heard most, where colonialism is sort of open rule, like let's say... Uh, you know, you have like a country in Africa and then the whole government is like people of European descent. Very obviously, you know, and they fly back and forth to Europe. Very obviously colonial system. Then a neo-colonial system or sort of what replaced that was that hidden colony where the government then came from uh, the home population, but they were still working for the colonial power. They're talking more about this like post-colonial system where even that system is done away with and there is uh, the colonies becoming the collective property, not just of one capitalist power exclusively, but of every country participating in the capitalist system or you know, this stage of the capitalist system, which is to say imperialism. All right. The structure of this current world imperialist system had its origins in the Allied bloc of imperialists during World War II. It was not only a military alliance during the war, but also set up international economic agencies, such as the IMF and World Bank, to manage its sphere of control after the war. Once the Axis bloc of Germany, Italy, and Japan was defeated, it was absorbed into this Allied bloc, which was then usually referred to as the Western bloc, despite the inclusion of Japan. During the state capitalist period of the USSR and the remainder of the Cold War, there were two essentially independent imperialist systems, the US-led Western Bloc and the Soviet social imperialist-led so-called Socialist Bloc. But after the collapse of the Soviet Union and its satellites, they too were absorbed into the remaining bloc. However, having now triumphed over almost the whole world and defeated all its competitors, this was no longer just an imperialist bloc. It was now the world imperialist system. China during the Maoist era was outside both of the two competing imperialist systems then existing from the late 1950s on. But after Mao's death, the capitalist rotors, led by Deng Xiaoping, transformed China back into a capitalist country, whose ruling national bourgeoisie, based in the Communist Party of China, was then faced with the choice to try to develop China separately from the rest of the capitalist world, or to join up and become part of the existing world capitalist imperialist system. They were compelled to choose the latter course, the only option with any real possibility of success. Like, could you really build capitalism outside of all the existing capitalist powers? No, obviously you had to integrate into that system if you're doing capitalism. They, quote, reformed their own originally state capitalist economy to a considerable degree along private monopoly capitalist lines. And there's a footnote there we'll come back to, quote, opened up to foreign capitalist investment and joined the IMF in 1980, the World Bank in 1980, and the World Trade Organization in 2001. They did this with eyes wide open, feeling that they could beat the U.S. and other major powers at their own game because of China's much greater exploitation of its own vast ocean of very low-paid workers. And so far, their gamble has proven to be a great success, as measured by capitalist imperialist standards, GDP growth rates, trade surpluses, the generation of great wealth for the Chinese bourgeoisie, etc. 
And I'll just add to that before we read the footnote. You know, China's, uh, when they started measuring or like setting their goals and then measuring their goals in terms of GDP, this should have been a major red flag for uh, any socialists uh, supporting them. So the footnote. In a later section, we will discuss the organization of Chinese capitalism today in a bit more detail. But while it is true that there are still many very important state-owned enterprises, or SOEs, it has also become true that these corporations, which are officially owned by the state, now actually function pretty much the same way as the, quote, private Chinese corporations do in the national and international market, that is, as if they were ordinary multinational corporations. And while Chinese capitalism today still has a stronger state participation in its entire economy, including the private sector, than do most other countries, nevertheless, positively all capitalist imperialist countries today can be viewed as a partial merger of the state with the capitalist economy. Moreover, that state intervention and direction is qualitatively expanding everywhere as the world economic crisis continues to develop. Wow. So that's that's the last um, screen. And what a great point to uh, kind of jump off of that from, because that's what I was talking about, the world economic crisis continuing to develop and basically the nationalization of all the losses while continuing to keep most of the profits um, in private hands for the capitalists who still get to run the uh, you know winners of the musical chairs game that is the ongoing collapse of um, of the you know global capitalist system as it used to be in the 20th century. Um, so yeah, the global financial crisis is continuing. Like I said, they bought themselves about a decade and a half with massive quantitative easing. It actually started in Japan before it was even done in the U.S. And there's a whole history there of quantitative easing. But it seems to me like they're running out of road. And where do they go from here is, uh, you know, greater nationalization under a bourgeois system of industry, you know, provision of goods and services as it exists. The uh, capitalist system, again, is on life support and is reaching its logical conclusion of massive, massive consolidation, just a handful of companies left, deep integration with the state. Uh, the, you know, this is sort of the end result of capitalism's historical timeline. And what comes after, if there is an after, is social revolution. I say if there is an after because, you know, human existence is not inevitable. Um, if we don't take power out of the hands of the bourgeoisie, they will destroy the planet because this system simply tries to externalize all environmental and social costs. And that catches up with you at some point. And, you know, we're drowning in garbage, pollution, plastic, forever chemicals, greenhouse gases, on and on and on. Species are going extinct at a huge rate. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's, it's possible that the collective intelligence and ability of the global proletariat is insufficient to dislodge capitalism, in which case there is global calamity and then, you know, some sort of Mad Max type scenario. Capitalism will not go on forever. It will die, uh, whether or not, you know, sort of the economy and human civilization has a, uh, an existence beyond that is really up to the masses. So that's his China and anti-imperialist country. And let me tell you, I'm probably going to do that very soon on the channel. In fact, I was going to do that critical thinking thing. Might actually bump this up instead as far as the offline supplement to this. 
Uh, before we go back into the chat and then close out this stream for today, I want to talk about um, how divisive these issues are. You know, you hear the sort of idiot commenters that I was referring to before. Um, there, you know, this also affects the parties themselves. So there was a thing called the European Communist Initiative. And this is a screenshot from the In Defense of Communism blog, idcommunism.com, which is closely tied with the Greek uh, Communist Party, KKE. Um, and so basically, about two weeks ago, there was a teleconference, this was September 9, of the parties of the European Communist Initiative. So what is that, first of all? So it was a working group of uh, 30 communist parties, primarily in the EU, and affiliated with the International Meeting of Communist and Workers' Parties, both of which were largely founded by the Greek Communist Party, KKE. Let me list off these um, parties quickly. So the Party of Labor of Austria, Communist Party of the Workers of Belarus, Party of the Bulgarian Communists, Union of Communists in Bulgaria, Socialist Workers' Party of Croatia, Communist Party in Denmark, in Finland, the Communist Workers' Party for Peace and Socialism, the Communist Revolutionary Party of France, the Pole of Communist Revival in France, the Unified Communist Party of Georgia, the Communist Party of Greece, Hungarian Workers' Party uh, in the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, the Workers' Party, in Italy, the Communist Party, Partido Communista, in Latvia, the Socialist Party of Latvia, in Lithuania, the Socialist People's Front, the Communist Party of Macedonia, North Macedonia, uh, the Communist Party of Malta, the Republic of uh, Moldova's People's Resistance, the Communist Party of Norway, the Polish Communist Party, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Yes, that is still a thing. Um, the Russian Communist Workers' Party, or RKRP, used to be like a underground communist party that um, was in opposition to the uh, KPRF or CPRF, which is a Duganist uh, Putin-tailing party. Unfortunately, the RKRP seems to have had a right-wing turn in uh, the recent past. Anyway, uh, in Serbia, the new Communist Party of Yugoslavia. In Slovakia, the Communist Party of Slovakia. Communist Party of the Workers of Spain and the Communist Party of Sweden. So those were the parties um, who were members of the ECI. So anyway, during the teleconference, continuing with this article, many contributions positively evaluated the activity of the ECI period... Uh, of the ECI for the period 2013 to 2022, which was its lifespan. Its contribution to the coordination of the communist parties in Europe and the joint study and elaboration of European and important international issues aimed at strengthening the struggle against the capitalist system, the EU, the bourgeois classes and their governments. At the same time, during the teleconference, the important ideological and political differences that have arisen over time, which have been aggravated since the outbreak of the war uh, being waged between USA, NATO, and EU, and capitalist Russia, uh, which creates insurmountable obstacles for the continuation of the ECI, were assessed. Based on the above, it was decided that the activity and function of the ECI be concluded. We are sure that life itself and the development of the class struggle in many European countries throughout the European continent will make it necessary in the coming period to establish a new form of inter-party cooperation between the communist and workers' parties of Europe, which will make use of the useful experience gained in the past decade from the activity of the ECI. So basically, the ECI was disbanded over tensions which came to a head over 
the Russia Ukraine thing, as we're just seeing everywhere. I saw it, you know, on the channel. This is a very, very divisive issue. You know, clearly for people, especially for whom, you know, social imperialism was fine, you know, they're, they keep lowering the standards lower and lower. It's like social imperialism is OK. OK, Putin's OK. Like they just keep going lower and lower with their standards. But let's continue with the statement here. So anyway, this is uh, the opening speech of the KKE, again, Greek Communist Party at the last teleconference of the parties of the European Communist Initiative. We would like to thank the parties participating in today's necessary teleconference concerning the acute problems of the European Communist Initiative, which have led to the suspension of its action and undermined the continuation of its course. The European Communist Initiative was founded 10 years ago as a space for cooperation between communist and workers' parties in Europe and the wider region based on an agreed framework and specific commitments. It has contributed to the exchange of views and substantive discussion on important ideological political issues. It has organized interventions on a wide range of problems faced by the working class, the popular strata, and the youth. The ECI has enriched its initial directions and acquired an important orientation. That orientation is, one, against capitalist barbarity for the overthrow of the regime of exploitation of man by man and the construction of socialism, in support of the principles of socialist construction, taking into account the experience of the Soviet Union, its achievements and accomplishments, as well as the problems it faced, the shortcomings, the mistakes that led to the counter-revolution, the overthrow of socialism, and the restoration of capitalism. Two, against imperialist war, for the elimination of its causes, inter-imperialist contradictions and competition. Three, against the bourgeoisie in every capitalist state, the anti-popular policies of the bourgeois governments and parties, whether social democratic or liberal ones. Four, against the USA, NATO, and the EU, and all kinds of imperialist alliances. Five, in the ideological political struggle against the party of the European left, PEL, and opportunism in general. Six, in the struggle against anti-communism, in support of the communist parties that are persecuted and struggle under conditions of illegality and all kinds of prohibitions. Seven, in solidarity with the Cuban people, Cuba and the Communist Party of Cuba, and the demand for an end to the blockade imposed by U.S. imperialism, in condemnation of the interventions of the EU and any intervention in the internal affairs of Cuba. Eight, in solidarity with the Palestinian people and all peoples. Nine, in solidarity with uprooted immigrants and refugees in the defense of their rights against racism and xenophobia. And we evaluate positively the work carried out by the ECI for a long period of time before the strong disagreements over the imperialist war and other problems which had a catalytic and negative impact on its course arose within it. So in other words, that's really, according to them, what wrecked this thing. The Secretariat made efforts to coordinate the interventions of the ECI to ensure its continuity, taking into account the different views expressed on various issues, the fact that the contribution of the parties was uneven, that some parties did not participate regularly and did not take part in the implementation of the actions. In this joint effort, the KKE has devoted considerable resources in order to establish, consolidate, and develop the action of the ECI based on its founding declaration and the positions that it subsequently adopted. In this course of time, some parties retreated from the agreed framework of the ECI and strong disagreements were expressed. 
Some parties disputed the character of imperialism as monopoly capitalism, the highest stage of capitalism as defined by Leninist principles. We're just reading that. Positions were expressed that limited imperialism to the USA and its foreign policy and disputed that each capitalist state participates in the imperialist system according to its economic, political, and military power in the context of uneven development. <laughs> Applause. Yeah, that's exactly what we were just talking about, that they decided that, hey, you know, the U.S. having this colony and France having this colony and the U.K. having this colony you know, and then, of course, Germany and Italy trying to do colonies in Africa, like around World War Two, like that wasn't working. And, you know, uh, for example, after World War Two, uh, Vietnam had been a French colony and then Fran France was devastated. USA had to try to step in. And, uh, you know, of course, the Vietnamese uh, won through intense struggle and war uh, liberation. But, uh, yeah, they were like, look, we can't. Um, you know, manage this on such a one-on-one -on -one basis anymore. Let's just make a system. That way we can all plug in to the extent, you know, that we're, uh, our strength and size is reflected. And to that extent, we'll get a bigger or lesser share of the pie. But now it's an open system where, you know, we sort of share dominance of the world in a more, again, uneven way, according to size and strength, but in a more smooth and fluid way in that, you know, it's less sort of individually possessive and then prone to sort of uh, conflict among imperialists. So they basically made a system after World War II uh, that would, um, it's somewhat similar to Kautsky's ultra-imperialism. The idea that the imperialist powers would come to a sort of truce of like how to share the world. Um, but of course, this doesn't really mean peace. It just means the cooperation of all the national bourgeoisies in the global exploitation of all the national proletariats, you know. So it doesn't really lead to peace per se. It led to reduced um, inter-imperialist military conflict. And that was what they were seeking to do because, you know, World War II was uh, kind of a pain for, for all the, the imperialists. And, uh, you know, they had to rebuild a lot of stuff. So they're like, why, why can't we share? Let's, you know, uh, divvy up the exploitation. And, and so far, it has proved to be more stable. Although, you know, is that coming to an end? How is the global financial crisis, um, you know, continuing to put pressure on the system in ways that could cause uh, inter-imperialist military flare-ups again that, you know, they had managed to forestall for decades and decades following World War II? Anyway, uh, well put there, but let's continue. Disagreements were also expressed in the stance of the ECI towards the uprooted immigrants and refugees, and some parties opposed the expression of support and solidarity. Not very communist of you. The problems were exacerbated after the outbreak of the war between the USA, NATO, EU, and capitalist Russia, and the unacceptable invasion of the Russian army into the territory of Ukraine. We underline that a significant number of parties of the ECI condemned the invasion rejected the, I mean, in my opinion, ludicrous pretexts used by the USA, NATO, and the EU on the one hand, and the Russian leadership on the other hand, and pointed out that the war is being led and waged by the bourgeois classes and is therefore imperialist on both sides. In this context, they called upon the working class and the peoples to oppose the imperialist war and to continue the struggle based on their own independent interests, their class interests, against the involvement of their countries in the war. 
against the bourgeois classes and the anti-popular governments in the direction of overthrowing the bourgeois power. Parties of the initiative were at the forefront of the international communist movement, and dozens of communist and workers' parties from all over the world signed joint statements that they put forward, sending a hopeful message. Mass demonstrations were held against the USA, NATO, the EU, and the imperialist war for the disengagement of NATO member states from the war and the dangerous NATO plans in general. However, a number of parties sided with capitalist Russia in the imperialist war. They justified and supported the Russian leadership and the invasion of the Ukrainian territory by claiming that this war is anti-fascist. Opposing the position that the war is imperialist, expresses acute capitalist rivalries, and is waged for the control of markets and wealth-producing resources, for energy and transport routes, leading the peoples to the slaughterhouse of war. In other words, in practice, certain parties have adopted positions that run counter to the agreed joint positions of the European Communist Initiative against the bourgeoisie and the imperialist war, creating conditions that have led to the obstruction of its action. So again, this is like the uh, accepting the Marxist-Leninist definition of imperialism in word, but then, you know, indeed, and in your gut, it's like, oh yeah, but the U.S. is still like the main, and it's like, no, stop, stop, this is a global system, all the advanced capitalist countries participate in it. Anyway, furthermore, some parties of the initiative are attempting to present China as a socialist state, while capitalist relations of production have long prevailed in China, and the exploitation of the working class and of man by man, which is the very definition of capitalism, is intensifying. Chinese monopolies are leading in the international market, exporting capital and commodities, while China and the USA are competing for supremacy in the capitalist system. Moreover, some parties of the European Communist Initiative participate in the so-called World Anti-Imperialist Platform, which supports Russia in the imperialist war and China in its competition with other imperialist centers. This creation engages in fabricated provocative attacks against some parties of the initiative and especially against the KKE, while some parties of the initiative post the provocative positions of the so-called anti-imperialist platform on their websites. The disagreements that have arisen concern issues of strategic importance which are becoming more acute. Under these circumstances, it is quite clear that the ECI has practically ended its activity, cannot continue its function, and the question of its dissolution arises. So that was posted on the initiative's website, which is initiative-cwpe.org. So let's go into the next thing. So there were responses to this. This is the uh, Initiative Communiste. And uh, so this says, uh, we refuse the unilateral dissolution of the ECI and uh, calling for the reconstruction of it. This was posted on the 10th of September, and they have an English translation down here. We reject the unilateral dissolution of the initiative of the Communist and Workers' Parties, call for reconstruction. Today, oh, I guess that's a misprint, November 9, should be September, unless this was posted from the future, I don't know. After a plenary meeting of all the members of the initiative of the Communist and Workers' Parties, founded in 2013, and of which the PRCF is one of the founding members, and after about two hours of debate, where yet no majority was emerging to go in this direction, a closing speech by comrade Georgos Marinos unilaterally decreed the dissolution of the initiative. It was added that it would now be prohibited to use the call or the logo of the initiative. The decision was not put to a vote. 
Since the meeting took place on Zoom, it was technically impossible for many parties wishing to protest against this overt anti-democratic act to protest. Our comrade Boris Differ even asked in writing on the thread, quote, why would there not be a vote on this? The only response was that there was no second round. Then the written thread was disabled. Whatever the possible divergences at the international level, and in particular the appreciation of the NATO-Russia conflict in Ukraine, we consider a bit we consider it unjustifiable to dissolve the international tools of struggle forged in the struggle and the trust gained over the years. We suggest to the parties who are members of the initiative, who are surprised by this brutal dissolution, to contact us to reflect together on the best way to continue the international fight, which is consubstantial to the uh, communist activity, or very important to communist activity on the basis of Marxism-Leninism and proletarian internationalism, and without opposing communist internationalism and the broad development of the anti-imperialist front. For the PRCF and the International Commission of the PRCF, Fadi Kassem, Georges Gasteau, Giat Stark, Rashida El-Fakir, Boris Differ, uh, Emmerich Monview. So there you go. Uh, some opposition to the what they're calling the unilateral dissolution of the ECI. They're saying, yes, we have differences, but this didn't even go up to a vote. Then there was a response to this. So comment of the international relations section of the CC of the Greek Communist Party. So confusion. The inevitable course towards the termination of the activity of the European Communist Initiative has caused confusion among some of the forces participating in it. They thought that the ECI, which was founded 10 years ago as a space of action of the European Communist Parties for, quote, a society without the exploitation of man by man, without poverty, social injustice, and imperialist wars, as stated in its founding declaration, would be transformed into a space of confrontation and ultimately of justification for the so-called just multipolar world, utterly liberal theory, which supposedly can be built by BRICS, the emerging BRICS capitalist bloc, without shaking the foundations of capitalist exploitation and imperialist competition that lead to unjust wars. In this regard, the PRCF, Pôle de Renaissance Communiste in France, has leveled ridiculous accusations at the Communist Party of Greece for allegedly unilaterally dissolving the ECI and not putting the question of dissolution to a vote during the recent teleconference, when it knows very well that the Secretariat of the ECI was in favor of the termination of its activity and that during its 10 years of activity, such a vote has never taken place. It even called upon the parties that didn't agree with this development to reconstruct the ECI. These accusations on the part of the PRCF against the KKE actually show malice and complete ignorance of basic principles of the functioning of the ECI, which unfortunately the PRCF seems to have been unable to assimilate during its participation. The operating framework of the ECI, which is published on its website, explicitly states that, quote, the initiative is a form of cooperation of communist and workers' parties, above all in the member states of the EU. It's based on a founding declaration which describes its principles and goals. It does not constitute a unified political party, nor does it constitute a, quote, European party, such as those established by the EU. Based on the above, all the parties which participate in the initiative have the same rights and obligations, while political decisions are taken according to the principle of unanimity, unquote. Over the years, all political decisions of the ECI have been taken based on the principle of unanimity. 
The PRCF seeks to conceal that this political unanimity, which was a characteristic feature of the functioning of the ECI, ceased to exist after Russia's unacceptable invasion of Ukraine in the framework of the imperialist war that has broken out between the Euro-Atlantic camp and the emerging Eurasian camp. And this lack of unanimity had practically put an end to the activities of the ECI for a year and a half. So he's saying this thing had been broken for a year and a half anyway. By the way, I just want to point out, you know, in light of talking about all of the sort of Russia propaganda that's out there, imagine you're Russia for a minute. Imagine, I mean, you know, propaganda works if you use it in sufficient quantity and just absolutely bombard people with it, especially if they're not particularly skilled at critical thinking and evaluating evidence. You're Russia. You're, you're the sort of, you know, the underdog in this fight. And, uh, you know, the, the aspiring, uh, you want to be a bigger imperialist and you're taking on the uh, more established people. Think of how much propaganda, like how much of an effort you would have to make. And then it makes sense when you go back and look at certain social media sites and why they're flooded with this kind of thing, because they need to use every scrap of the public space that they possibly can to try to put out their perspective and gain sympathy for it, etc. Just, you know, getting a sense of the perspective on the size of such an effort. So anyway. Continuing, the KKE and a significant number of ECI parties condemned the invasion, rejecting both the pretext used by the USA, NATO, EU, and by the Russian leadership. So anyway, this is sort of continuing uh, that statement. On the contrary, the PRCF and some other parties of the ECI have aligned themselves with one side of the slaughterhouse of the imperialist war, which is being waged for raw materials, market shares, and the profits of capital, even glorifying the massacre of the peoples in the name of anti-fascism, anti-imperialism, or the formation of a, quote, multipolar world. And I'm saying now more people need to take on Breakthrough News, closely aligned with uh, PSL, and people like Ben Norton for pushing this crap under some kind of left or Marxist guise. No, fuck you and we're coming for you. In practice, they have lost any sense of class and internationalist stance as they support the Russian bourgeoisie, its state, and the imperialist war. The PRCF, and let me just point out, by the way, um, in supporting the Russian bourgeoisie, the Russian bourgeois state for a war in which they crack down on civil liberties because it is wartime, etc., what do you think that does to the prospects of social revolution? If you even care about that, but what do you think it does to the prospects of social revolution to have the sort of, uh, you know, be cheering on and supporting the development of, uh, you know, reduced civil liberties and, and etc. Continuing, the PRCF also hides the fact that diametrically opposed approaches have developed within the ranks of the international communist movement and the ECI on other issues, such as the issue of China, which today competes with the USA for supremacy in the imperialist system and is far from building socialism, as the PRCF and some other parties believe. Serious disagreements have also arisen due to the stance of some of the parties of the ECI, which have spoken against refugees and immigrants in their countries and have refused to show solidarity with these people, who, in the opinion of the KKE and other parties, are victims of imperialist wars and capitalist exploitation, a fact also reflected in the statements of the ECI. The PRCF, which accuses the KKE of unilaterally dissolving the ECI and some other parties of the ECI, participate in the so-called World Anti-Imperialist Platform, 
together with some suspicious groups which only engage in vulgar insults and distortion of the KKE's positions. Such a, quote, anti-imperialist stance will certainly make the USA rub its hands with glee, seeing how the so-called anti-imperialists of the platform attack the KKE, which is at the forefront of the struggle for the closure of the U.S.-NATO bases in Greece and the disengagement of the country from NATO and the EU, which is the only political force in the country that opposes Greece's participation in the imperialist war in Ukraine. Could it be, therefore, that the platform is made by other forces than those obvious at first sight? In any case, the PRCF must know that the anti-KKE sentiment will fail and will not go unanswered. Neither the PRCF nor any other force has the right to use the symbols and the title of the ECI in the future, but if it wishes to do so, it can come together with those forces which agree with the political positions it expresses. Besides, every political force will be judged by the workers for its stance and position on national and international issues. That's dated September 15. One more thing, closing out this section here. Uh, there's this, this is an opinion by Nikos Matas. Um, I believe this was from ID Communism as well, who's the editor of that site. Um, on the termination of the activity of the European Communist Initiative and the role of opportunism. The erosive and undermining role of opportunism in the international communist movement has made its appearance again, this time by leading to the termination of the activity of the ECI initiative. According to a statement made by the Secretariat of the initiative, the, quote, important ideological and political differences that have arisen over time, which have been aggravated since the outbreak of the war being waged between the USA, NATO, EU bloc and capitalist Russia, were assessed during a last or final teleconference held on September 9. In previous articles a year ago, we highlighted the existence of a persistent and intensifying ideological and political struggle within the European and international communist movement. We've definitely seen it in the U.S., what passes for a communist movement in the U.S. Focused on the stance of the communists toward the imperialist war in Ukraine, absolutely. Following the Russian invasion in February 2022, two major tendencies were formed within the communist movement worldwide. The first, expressed by the KKE and other parties of the IMCUWP, such as the Communist Party of Turkey, the Communist Party of Mexico, and the Communist Party of the Workers of Spain, PCTE, highlights the imperialist character of the war waged between the U.S., NATO, EU, and capitalist Russia. And remember, folks, when you're acknowledging it as an inter-imperialist war, that means you're acknowledging the USA's imperialism, right? This war is part of the broader inter-imperialist competition. But again, what are people say when that like idiot commenter before was like, oh, you need to look at the U.S.'s imperialism. I said, yeah, they, I did. That's why I called this an inter-imperialist conflict. What are they really saying? They're saying, no, the U.S. is the only imperialist. That's the only thing that really qualifies as imperialism, completely misunderstanding the nature of imperialism as understood by Marxist-Leninists. So anyway. This war is part of the broader inter-imperialist competition between the Euro-Atlantic bloc and the rising capitalist powers, Russia and China. This consistent Leninist approach was expressed, among others, in a joint statement signed by 73 communist and workers' parties and youths in 26 February 2022. And we read that on the channel at the time. You can find it uh, still posted on the channel. The second tendency is composed by communist parties that support capitalist Russia and Putin's anti-communist bourgeois regime in the, quote, anti-fascist war against NATO and Ukraine. 
Ignoring or distorting Leninist principles, this poll denies the imperialist character of the war from both sides and systematically cultivates illusions and confusions about the stance of communists in this very critical situation. Both the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, CPRF or KPRF, again, a Duganist, basically, uh, I mean, Dugan was a neo-Nazi, so you got a party, quote, Communist Party there that was co-founded by a neo-Nazi, and the Russian Communist Workers' Party, RCWP, bear huge responsibility for shaping this opportunist front as long as they have been tied to the chariot of the Russian government. So I believe that um, Russian Communist Workers' Party, that's also the, uh, the one that I was talking about before. Let me get the acronym uh, when you pull it out of uh, Russian. RKRP. So they were the ones, I believe, that did that rightward turn. They were like interviewing Infracell earlier this year. So you can see the direction that they were going in. Uh, so anyway, he's blaming them, uh, KPRF and uh, the, the other one, for shaping the opportunist front. The creation of the so-called World Anti-Imperialist Platform, or WAP, a mixture of various political forces, including communist parties, social democrats, let's try that again, including communist parties, social democrats, political groups of dubious ideological origins from South Korea, Venezuela, and Greece, as well as nationalists, has contributed to the formation of an opportunist tendency concerning the war in Ukraine. It's not a coincidence that WAP, seemingly led by a minor party based in... Oh, God, it's the fucking CPGBML and Omfog. The Caleb Bopin people. Uh, the anti-trans, the, the Brars, Yoti Brar in them. It's not a coincidence that WAP, seemingly led by a minor party based in Britain, the Communist Party of Great Britain, ML, has been engaged in outrageously provocative attacks against the KKE through blatant distortions and lies. They are just a fucking right-wing party pretending to be communist. In the last teleconference of the initiative, ECI, the KKE referred to the erosive role of WAP. Quote, some parties of the European Communist Initiative participate in the so-called world anti-imperialist platform, which supports Russia in the imperialist war and China in its competition with other imperialist centers. This creation engages in fabricated provocative attacks against some parties of the initiative and especially against the KKE. While some parties of the initiative post the provocative positions of the so-called anti-imperialist platform on their websites, unquote. Unfortunately, as the KKE pointed out, a number of parties sided with capitalist Russia in the imperialist war. They justified and supported the Russian leadership in the invasion of the Ukrainian territory by claiming that this war is anti-fascist, opposing the position that the war is imperialist, expresses acute capitalist rivalries, is waged for the control of markets and wealth-producing resources, for energy and transport routes, leading the peoples to the slaughterhouse war, unquote. Uh, furthermore, the KKE speaker underlined that some Parties of the initiative are attempting to present China as a socialist state, etc. We read that before. Based on the latest developments, we can say that the termination of the activity of the ECI undoubtedly marks a setback for the European and international communist movement. This cooperate, although, again, if this is the way it went, I, like, I agree it's a setback because you want to see organizations you know, grow in number and sort of deepen in cooperation. You don't want to have to reform with like the half of it that was actually taking the Marxist-Leninist position rather than the opportunist position. But let me say, and this was basically how, how I uh, looked at it with the channel, is all these people that were in your coalition or audience or, you know, who you thought were uh, supporters and comrades, you know, you thought they were communists. They actually weren't. And this issue actually brought that out. 
And so this really just sort of exposes uh, the fact that there were lots of people that, that in other words, the initiative um, and that, that coalition looked larger than it actually was. It looked like there were more communists there than there actually were. And that's, you know, that's the way I looked at it with uh, people supporting and contributing to and, you know, working, networking with uh, this channel as a public communist education effort is, you know, a lot of these people uh, that were in my network, I thought were communists and actually weren't. And they, and they exposed that anti-communism and anti-Leninism uh, by, you know, rejecting what was ob overwhelmingly, obviously, uh, an imperialist war. So, yeah, it's, you know, you, you got to realize at any given time, and I'm, I'm, just, I'm saying this in solidarity, I'm not trying to like talk down to the KKE, I'm saying this in solidarity because it is a blow, it sucks, uh, and I, I completely understand, like, it completely sucks to realize a lot of people you thought were comrades really weren't, although, again, you know, as they said, this has been developing for a year and a half, but I guess you just have to realize at any given time, uh, you know, within a communist coalition, or ostensibly communist coalition, it's just sort of like one exposing event. It's one crisis away from like realizing that, you know, a third of the people showing up as allegedly comrades like actually aren't. You just haven't seen it yet. And I say that just as sort of general advice to everybody is like, you know, take it with a grain of salt and, you know, really try to find out where people stand in depth because otherwise, you know, um, some crisis emerges. You find you're holding hands with a fascist that you thought was a communist. So. All right, anyway, where were we? This cooperation, but yeah, I mean, it is a setback because it's like, fuck, now we got to like, you know, we thought we had this many members. We thought we had this much momentum. Actually, we have, you know, two thirds of that or a half of that. It does suck. This cooperation space between communist and workers parties from Europe and the broader region, which was founded in 2013, had a notable contribution in the effort for the reconstruction of the European working class movement. And it will go on, you know, this is a setback, but it will regroup and it will go on. The end of the initiative is indeed a temporary victory of the opportunists and their masters. However, the struggle against opportunism must be intensified so that the consistent Marxist-Leninist forces, the actual communist parties, and not the false ones, will come out victorious, both ideologically and politically. And yeah, Nikos Matos is the editor-in-chief of idcommunism.com. So thank you for that. I appreciate the people who sent in those articles. I think that this is important to see all of the stuff that's been going on in the U.S. communist space is also being played out in the European space as well. All right. Now, that was a lot of uh, ranting and commenting and articles, but I think actually that um, there was a lot of substance to that. So I'm glad that we went through all that today. Now I'm going to go into the chat. Finally. So scrolling up, and I apologize if I uh, lost some of the comments here. Where are mods? I see that there's um, need for, for modding here as soon as I go back to the chat. All right, so did lose part of the chat, but let me, I think I can make it through everything that is here. So uh, what do we have? I know this is, I think, I think going back to the uh, comments. I just know this dude is thinking, S4, I didn't respond because I'm so much smarter and obviously correct. Yeah, no, I literally am not like reading Twitter anymore and like honestly could care less. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I don't go in for drama in the first place. Uh, more issue, I'm more interested in issues, topics like studying Marxism, Leninism. That's why I'm doing this channel. I didn't get into this for like clout at all. I 
did it to help rebuild the workers movement and uh, and to clarify my own understanding of things, because I have been involved in the left for quite some time and I'd like to do it better. You know, I've uh, seen all the sort of opportunity. I mean, what I didn't know to call opportunism at the time, but I saw that I saw the sort of right wingers just sort of, um, you know, expressing dominance all over the place and people just sort of sucking up to them the sort of uh, progressive libertarian alliance or the attempts at it, all that fucking left-right alliance stuff. It's just opportunism and it just benefits the right. And we have talked about that many times. But uh, yeah, I didn't get into this for like clout. I'm glad to see that the channel is growing and that, you know, there are people out, out there to also um, actually listen to this and who are actually interested in seriously studying this and coming up with the correct rather than just like you know, pulled out of their ass conclusions. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, hats off. Like, I salute you to those who are for real about that. But um, there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of noise out there. I do think in this stream in particular, you know, we did a decent job of sort of uh, cutting through a lot of that and and uh, and modeling that as well. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I don't know what these people think that they're doing because they obviously don't know what they're talking about those two commenters that i was uh you know responding to before i did tell the one guy i was like i mean you're going to be featured on a stream like enjoy it but it's not you know i'm not out to just you know i i didn't post the guy's name it's like not out to go bully these people i'm not interested in that fucking you know middle school like recess yard garbage you know some kind of like uh ben empanada type like online drama toxic clout shit not interested in it what i am interested in is people uh upholding a marxist leninist position you know what i mean this isn't about personalities and streamers i couldn't give less of a shit about the you know drama carousel for liberals that um constitutes so much of uh you know the online quote-unquote marxist and leftist space I, I could not be any more bored with that and i'm glad that we uh you know are doing what we're doing here instead and thank you all who are more interested in this than in the uh the kitty stuff all right anyway so somebody saying yeah read that referring to the red uh red path book um is china imperialist and also pao yu ching's book from victory to defeat China's Socialist Road and Capitalist Reversal are great. Now, I'll point out that uh, I may do some more of the foreignlanguages.press audiobooks. They actually, I think earlier this year, well, they did. I, I think it was earlier this year. It was like pretty recently. Might have been late last year. Foreign Languages Press actually has their own YouTube channel now. They've been uploading their own audiobooks as well. So, uh, yeah. But, I mean, I may do some of them as well so I can do the commentary and all that stuff. But, yeah, if you're looking for that, they have their own channel now as well. Okay, thank you for the Medium post. I'll check that out. And I've actually started compiling more of a list in a dog. I used to just have, like, a bunch of tabs open, and it was crashing my browser. And I wasn't really able to read the things, but I've been um, consolidating more of like a, a reference sheet for me to look for news um, that is like a Word document, and I'm kind of using that now. So links will actually not just get um, swept into the oblivion of like being one of 500 open tabs. So, 
When I say now, I will look at it. I actually have some chance of doing that. All right. Another comment. I still need to read on practice and contradiction. Hell, I have a ton to read. Luckily, I listen to books a lot, and even when I read a physical or ebook, I still like to listen to it while I read. I find a lot of people say that actually, um, that they read along. They'll listen to like an S4A audiobook, but then they also listen, they read along with it in the text, and good for you. Um, I don't know why, but it's how I've grown to enjoy reading. I prefer to hear and read at the same time. Sure. I mean, maybe that would have been popular if this technology had been out for longer, you know, too. I don't know. Uh, let's see. Sison has held rightist positions in the Filipino revolutionary movement, not going to lie. He had been consistently trying to get support from China since the 90s. Interesting. Yeah, I, I honestly have not followed that super closely. I mean, becoming more familiar with it as time goes on. And obviously there's like a lot of online support in the U.S. communist English language space for uh, for the Philippine uh, revolutionary movement. So, you know, that gets promoted a lot. So learning more about it. But I mean, 2012, that was pretty crazy. Um, but yeah, like I said, I don't know all the history of that. Twitter is good for raw footage and updates from Ukraine, for example. I only use it for that. Yeah, somebody else says only good for news. That's it. Yeah, the Imperial Corps is horrific. It's hard to make ends meet, let alone thrive. Yeah, again, you know, people tend to focus on the police state aspect of fascism, which is key and prominent. But really even more prominent than that is the inequality, which is why they need the police state. So really the austerity, you know, again, after 2008, what was the big buzzword? Austerity, shared sacrifice. Um, you know, as Bill Hicks used to say, when the Republicans would get up there and talk about tightening the belt. It's like, yeah, I'd like to tighten the belt around your neck. Um, yeah, that's what they come out with when there's a collapse of global capitalism. Oh, we got to put this cost onto the workers. Austerity, austerity, slash social welfare, etc. So, yeah, people think of the police state and fascism, but the reason they need the police state is the horrific, brutal inequality. The 70s opening up period, at least from my understanding, is China getting secondary benefits from global imperialism. Also, I think everyone should read Walter Rodney's How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. Yes. I hate how many of my peers I saw sucked into the military through high school military recruiters. Absolutely. I highly recommend. There's a number of anti-recruiting resources out there. If your local left group is looking for something to do, try some counter-recruitment work. Um, you can, you know, there's trainings on, on how to do counter-recruitment work. And we talked about that a little bit in a previous live stream. My understanding and maybe others could say it's better to think of the U.S. like having payday loans type relationships and China is more like a traditional bank, like better deals, less sort of like beat you over the head exploitative, but capitalism is inherently exploitative. Um, both are operators in preparatory ways, but if we go out of our way to only see the differences and not the similarities between, you know, different country, you know, the rival East and West capitalists, you got to see the similarities. Uh, if you just see the differences, you'll not see the global dominant system for what it is. Yeah, I agree. And um, you'll start trying to do lesser evilism. Now look at the similarities because there's you know, more in common than not. Yeah, sorry about all those. Uh, apparently 49 messages were deleted when I banned that one 
troll. Um, I guess I guess we do need more mods, but that's caught up now. Talking about partially nationalized enterprises, here in Vienna, the major energy provider is 100% owned by the municipal government, and yet it's run exactly like a private company that tries to squeeze out every last penny from their customers. I already read this thing last week, oh, the, uh, the ECI stuff, and checked out this People's Party of Austria, which is a split of the Communist Party of Austria. They're a very small group, and I've never heard of them before. Nevertheless, I signed up for their newsletter and I'm curious as to what they're up to, okay? Sometimes I wonder if some of the NAFO online stuff was Russia-funded, because it was, like, so ridiculously bad, you mean? That's, for people who don't know, NAFO is the North Atlantic Fellows Organization. It was this sort of ridiculous, like, comically awful um, pro-NATO thing. Breakthrough News has only been pushing brick stuff recently. I've noticed it as well. Yeah, expect reaction videos, and I would like to see more and more channels confronting that. It needs to be done. And yeah, stuff like Ben Norton also, Danny Haifong, etc. That, that whole, the whole multipolarity BRICS gang that is, you know, doing it in the name of Marxism. It's the best propaganda that makes people pro-Russia by making the other evil side look like clowns when everyone is a clown. Have we really learned nothing from the failures of the Second International, which, of course, was hugely opportunist and was picking sides, lesser evilism in the uh, imperialist war. And that's what Lenin was writing about in all these, you know, the defeat of one's own government in the imperialist war, all those other pieces about World War One. It's like over and over again. Look at the war and nationalism playlist. You'll find just hour after hour of, uh, you know, various pieces on this topic. Or even, uh, you know, things as simple as uh, Proletarian Revolution and the Renegade Kautsky. You know, this is like major, major works of Lenin. It's not like obscure stuff. That was a defining moment, in fact, in world communism, because after the Second International went opportunist, that led to the founding of the Third Communist International, the Comintern. It was a huge turning point, and it was over this issue I don't know how people can possibly, I mean, in any sincere way, I can see it being funded by imperialist interests, but um, I can't see anyone sincerely who knows anything about Lenin. who's even casually let, read, you know, any of Lenin's like major works or like, you know, half a dozen of Lenin's major works. These themes are, are really prominent throughout. So, yeah. When this shit started, I said it is the role of Americans to criticize America and Russians to criticize Russia and root for defeat. The people I know in these flawed parties like PSL said similar things. What I think, though, is because class struggle is so little right now, we get opportunist parties to reflect that. Yeah, I mean, again, what we want to see is, well, anyway, I've said it enough times at this point. Well, enough times for this stream anyway, but I'm just sick of saying it. I'm sure it'll need to be said again. I've been reading New Worker and New Spark. They're having trouble agreeing on a line in the ALU. Uh, okay, Let's take a look at that. These are two uh, other communist news sources. Open that in a new tab there later. I watched some of Bad Empanada's videos a few months back and liked them 
Then I found out about his second channel. So, so you were, you were watching, yeah. So some of Bad Empanada's main channel a few months ago, where he does the more like researched video essays and liked them. Then I found out about his second channel where he does debate stuff. It's just pure fucking masturbatory drama and completely stopped watching him because it's just a waste of time. I'd say it's worse than a waste of time. It's really toxic and it gets people so worked up and distracted about stuff that just utterly does not matter. Kind of disillusioned me about him. Yeah, I think he's kind of a joke and just sort of off his rocker. He, uh, he came after me one time on Twitter because he made this post of, like, a homeless U.S. veteran. Uh, and it was, like, more of this. So we do, like, a lot of anti-homelessness stuff. That's just not, like, a good post. Like, obviously we're against militarism and U.S. empire. That's just really not a good post, though. And uh, he flipped out. He Well, he was getting ratioed. It wasn't just me. He was getting ratioed hard on that post um but then he decided to, i was one of the people that he decided to uh try to go after on that and i was like online that day and i got to take a little bit of a back and forth with him and he was just using like vosh level sort of attempts at debate manipulation i'm like it's just a bad post can you just accept it's a bad post he was trying to do this bizarre thing where it was like um all the american leftists will say a cab but then support soldiers. No, it's just a bad post that kind of comes off as pro-homelessness. It doesn't mean we're like pro-militarism. Really stupid. And uh, he's like, well, do you think that U.S. soldiers deserve to be punished and all this stuff? And I'm like, even if so, like, what are you saying? It's like karma? Like, I'm just against homelessness, okay? Like, it's just such a fucking bizarre uh, thing. And uh, anyway, the dude's just unbalanced, so um, <laughs> you would not recommend. So I totally agree with your analysis. How can we coexist with some pseudo-communists who uh, the only thing that they're doing is damaging the movement? I don't know that we can't. I mean, you know what I mean? I, th I think it's just um, we have to do the education at this stage and the and the sort of movement building. Again, like in the U.S., the main task is, um, you know, rebuilding the labor movement, getting enough political consciousness where people separate from the Democratic Party because the left has consistently refused to leave the Democratic. They either stay in the Democratic Party or they leave the Democratic Party and then just like drop out entirely. We need people to be politically engaged, but not in the Democratic Party. We need a labor movement built back, like all of that stuff. As far as communist communists... I don't think we're really that relevant to the masses right now. We need to prepare for the day when we are relevant to them. But, uh, you know, and, and work out these sort of uh, ideological struggle issues between now and then. And, you know, I think just take it with a grain of salt. There were many people who were regular commenters on the channel. And, you know, I knew that they uh, maybe were too terminally online because, you know, they were watching my channel when it was very small. That's not to say that everyone who was watching S4A when it was, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 subscribers was terminally online, but that was some of the original base. And then I saw a lot of these people get peeled off when Infracell made his uh, emergence onto the scene. I was like, oh, these people clearly are not communists because they just started 
parroting everything he said. They're just terminally online people who don't really care about communist principles and are just going to listen to the loudest, most obnoxious voice. So that's, you get a lot of that. And I think that's like a lot of Ben and Panada's audience too, honestly. Um, there's actually a significant amount of overlap between, actually, let's look. Let me look at the, I haven't looked at the analytics in like a year. But I know for a while, Ben Empanada was like the channel I had the most overlap with in my audience. And uh, yeah, I mean, it is um, terminally obnoxious and uh, basically unlistenable. But, you know, had some of the least bad politics overall. Let's see, as far as anal analytics, who, who else is this channel listening to? I sincerely have not checked this in like a year. Um, might as well find out. But anyway, the point being, just know, you know, take it with a grain of salt at this point that like a lot of supposed comrades like really aren't. And uh, you just haven't found out yet. I find that's like sort of the best way to not be overly disappointed when it happens. All right. Channels your audience watches. And so we've got Hakeem, Second Thought, First Thought, The Deep Program, and Ugopnik. Sensing a pattern there. Then, Bad Empanada, Marxism Today, Finnish Bolshevik, Non-Compete, Black Red Guard. Then, Fellow Traveler, Renegade Cut, Midwestern Marx. I hope just to uh, rag on it. Chapo Trap House and Thought Slime. So those are the top 15 channels that I've overlapped with right now. And that's how that goes. You know, I don't watch the deprogram or Hakeem or Ugopnik or Second Thought or First Thought. So I don't know. How are they doing? Uh, anybody anybody have opinions there? I've seen them post some kind of like milk toast and even questionable shit. So, but I also know they have like a huge audience. And so, you know, the bottom line right now is people just don't care about Marxism-Leninism. That's the bottom line. Like everybody wants to have the title of like, I'm a based communist, but they don't actually want to know what it means to have a Marxist-Leninist position. That's the bottom line. What I found is you cannot make them care. So all that stuff, I think its failures will be shown. Uh, all this opportunism, you know, it will come out of what a huge, gigantic mistake that was. And that will only become more clear with time. I've already had some people come back and be like, hey, you were right. Whether or not that happens, I think that all of that will go down in flames, much like the Second International, although that was actually an actual political movement with actual politicians that had actual power and, and authority within the bourgeois governments. But anyway, uh, at least within the world of influence and, you know, sort of newspapers and media and talking heads, you know, it will, I think, become clear that um, this wave of opportunism and revisionism will be outed and will be shown up and people will realize like how empty it is. I don't know when that is. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And I'm trying now as hard as I can to warn people about that and to um, steer people away from it. What I found is it's really, really hard to get people to give a shit about what the correct position actually is. Or to engage in that in any way beyond, like, I like the way that this streamer postures on camera. That's, like, how shallow a lot of this is. People haven't done the reading. They don't know what the fuck they're talking about, which is exactly why they're vulnerable to 
Caleb Maupin or like who you know whoever. Yeah, I'll, I'll second fuck bad empanada. Loser indeed. He came after me in the comments on multiple videos on YouTube. Yeah, that's not to mention the COVID denial he was doing either. His Twitter was the most toxic place. Bad empanada has, hasn't posted a video for a month or two. Wonder what he's doing now. I mean, maybe he got a life. I don't know. But uh, maybe he was um, assassinated in the in the, tw- the great Twitter wars. <laughs> Who knows? His his ego was so badly wounded he can't log back on. I have no idea. I have no idea. It is so toxic. It's it's just I th- I feel like it's just damaging to watch. Honestly, I do like Finball's content. Like there's a guy that actually knows what he's talking about. So hats off to Finball. The programmed S four A pipeline. Uh, the pipeline is still pretty narrow. Let me put it that way. The deprogrammer just dungus, unfortunately. Well, that makes sense. I mean, Hakeem has said kind of a lot of things in that direction. And then uh, I don't really know much about Ugopnik, but what's his name? Second Thoughts in CPUSA. So, I mean, you know, Midwit Marx is also in CPUSA. It's not a great party. Uh, Hakeem is a multipolarity guy. Deprogram is boring and socked them. Second Thought is a little basic. Okay, so a lot of confirmation that deprogram is multipolarity. All right, I'll go after them too. Yeah, Hakeem does seem to think he's Lenin, but that's not... They're pretty lib. Well, let me also say, you don't get an audience of a million subscribers being actual communists. That's not a thing that happens in 2023, you know, YouTube space. That's not a thing that happens. So yeah, I'm not surprised that people are saying that they're kind of like lib and sock down. At least they did get you here, so that's good. Now, how did they get you here? Was it telling you to read things, or was it a specific uh, recommendation of S4A? Well, I think that the deprogram stuff has the most overlap because they just have the most viewers. But yeah, I think Finball and Marxism today probably have the most like ideological similarity or, or ideological overlap. And yeah, also Politsturm. Although Politsturm isn't growing as fast. I remember like when we we got to be the same size around 10,000 and anyway, I've been growing a little faster than Politsturm. I also upload, I think it's because they haven't been uploading. I don't know why. They've uploaded some live streams, but they haven't been doing, uh, you know, they kind of do those, um, uh, you know, whatever, just the, the videos that they upload. They're like 10 to 20 minute videos on various topics related to communism. They haven't really been uploading. So I think that's why they haven't been growing. I think Deprogram are good for Socialism 101 in the sense that Richard Wolff sort of used to be. Yeah, here's the thing with the Socialism 101 stuff, though. I can do Socialism 101 stuff. It's got to be accurate. I'm really, really tired of people, and I want to harp on this. If you're doing Socialism 101, that means you're presenting beginner concepts, but it still should be accurate. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like a lot of times people will say Socialism 101 and that excuses a bunch of revisionist shit. No, it, you know, that's not okay. You, if you're doing Socialism 101, you need to do it in a way that's still accurate. It's just that you're uh, introducing simpler concepts and then, you know, then more advanced ones. But I think people like, oh, Wolf's okay for Socialism 101. No, not if he's giving people a flawed foundation. 
then they're going to try to get up to the next thing and realize they have to unlearn everything they just learned. You know what I mean? Like, wait, co-ops aren't socialism? You know, and then, then they got to unlearn that. I think it's not socialism 101. It's revisionism 101. So anyway, that's, I have strong feelings about that. I went through a lot of YouTube channels the past year. It started with watching Not Just Bikes. I haven't even heard of that. Adam something. Then Second Thought. Then The Deprogram. Then Bad Empanada. Then The Deprogram Discord server. Then S4A. All right. Well, welcome. I recognize you from the comments, so I'm glad glad you're here. You seem, you know, serious um, and intelligent, so welcome. I will eventually probably start more video series that are like Socialism 101. And I will be sure, I will make the point many times over that uh, Socialism 101 does not mean incorrect socialism. It just means like beginning socialism. Can I recommend other Twitch streamers? Uh, no. No, I cannot. I would pretty much watch Breakthrough to stay up to date on union struggles. They do okay on that. And there's not a lot being provided for good coverage. Yeah, I think Status Quo is doing some stuff there as well. And yeah, you know, you know, take it for what it is. But when it starts getting into the international relations stuff, that's where they, like, fall on their face. Early on, Deprogram, they did do some shout-outs to S4A, but I mostly just watch First Thought for some world news. If something catches my attention, I'll look into it more. I mean, that's good, but, I, I, you know, let's put it this way. As time goes on, I'm not becoming more amenable to, like, revisionism and opportunism. I'm becoming much more critical of it. It's the only way I can keep doing this channel, honestly. I find it absolutely infuriating to watch that stuff proliferate. And streams like we did today is the only way I can keep going. Uh, I get frustrated and bored out of my mind uh, just, you know, watching that stuff build up without pushing back on it. Pro uh, Prolicult, yeah, also. The only other one I subscribe to on Patreon, somebody says. Recommended um, on the, or linked to anyway on the S4A channels tab. I've been here since the Einstein book. There you go. Now, Kim Jong, were you a Facebook follower? Those were fraught times. I didn't know what I was doing yet. But yeah, the uh, Einstein book. That was like one of the first ten I think I put up. Okay, so you s somehow found the channel even way in the beginning. Well, good. Uh, here we are three and a half years later. All right, that's it for me. And... We will be maybe taking a break from streaming next week. The stream actually went better than I was expecting. Uh, I actually got some stuff off my chest that I didn't even realize was bothering me as much as it was. So who knows? Maybe I'll keep streaming. But um, yeah, it seems a bit of an either or between that and the audiobooks. But uh, maybe now that I've cleared a little space and blown off some steam, I can do both and get back in the audiobooks. We'll figure it out. Anyway, thanks again. We'll see you in the next video.